0: Hello, and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. And you can probably find my podcast crawling around on other platforms. I heard it's on iHeartRadio and other places like that now, too. So, this week, we're going to take a little uh, a little turn uh, left, right, whatever. Uh, we're not talking Scientology stuff at all. We're not talking cult stuff at all. But then again, maybe we are. Um, I have, joining me as a guest this week, somebody I'm very, very happy to have on board. His name is Dr. James Lindsay, and he is a person who holds degrees in physics and mathematics. He is not actually in academia, so I'm not introducing him as a professor or something like that. He's kind of an independent operator, and we're going to talk a little bit about that and what he's been operating, the fields that he's been operating and researching and writing about. He's the author of five books, and a sixth one is on its way. Um, He has written uh, dot, 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 infinity plus God equals folly, He has written a book called Life in the Light of Death, and Everybody is Wrong About God, uh, which is pretty cool, and his sixth one is called Cynical Theories, which is on its way later this year. Uh, He lives out in Tennessee, and James, or I should say Jim, welcome to the show first off. Hi. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks for having me.
1: Great awesome. introduction.
0: <laughs> yes, I went a little extended length there. Um, you are also known sort of, sort of famously. In fact, you and and I've uh, Peter Bagosian, who's been a, a guest on this podcast also, and uh, uh, Helen Pluckrose. Uh, you guys teamed up in uh, back in summer two thousand seventeen, but were publishing a whole bunch of uh, faux academic papers. That's true. Yep.
1: That's true. And to give credit where credit's due, um, my my forthcoming book, Cynical Theories, is co-authored with Helen. And huh. my fifth book previously is How to Have Impossible Conversations, and that was co-authored with Peter. So we're all working together in various capacities still.
0: Perfect. Awesome. And and all of you are, are quite impressive. I've interacted with Helen on Twitter a little bit, invited her on the podcast, but she's like, no, I'm not the public face of this of this thing and um and that's fine you know helen's helen's pretty cool um now you guys let me just so for those of you guys out there who don't have any idea what i'm talking about right now this was this was kind of a nuclear bomb in the academia world and what happened was there are uh we'll, we, and we're going to talk in some detail about this so i'm just going to kind of give a real quick summary here of there are academic papers that we could call controversial uh, we could also call them silly. We could also call, also call them baseless. And they are certainly not scientific. And, the, and so looking at this problem, and this is apparently a, a, a rather large problem in academia, um, these three decided that one way to tackle it would be to sh- highlight or show how ridiculous these papers are by writing their own. And really, you know, exaggerating just how nonsensical some of this stuff can get. And they actually did submit the papers to professional academic journals, not just puff piece places, but real uh, places that that are supposed to be considered in the world of academia as this is gold standard stuff. And they got these faux papers published, and they were, okay, and they even got awards for these. There was one that was published, in a, and this is peer-reviewed journals, for writing a paper suggesting men should be put on leashes to train them like dogs. After they had said in their paper that they had surveyed, they didn't actually do this, but they said they had surveyed 10,000 dogs' genitalia, and compared that to their male owner's sexuality and therefore came to this conclusion that men should be trained like dogs. Pretty impressive stuff. <laughs> 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 All right, but you also wrote something that I found fascinating and I wanted to ask you about this first. My viewers know that I come from a Scientology background Coming out into the world back in 2012, 2013, when I first got out of Scientology, was rough. And acclimating to the big, wide world was rough. Scientology skews pretty conservative. I took a liberal stance coming out of Scientology, learning about how the homophobia of Scientology is really not a great thing um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's off the rails, right? The anti-psychology, anti-psycho- psychiatry stance of Scientology, pretty nuts. So I addressed those topics first, and in doing that, I ran into this whole thing that was a flutter all over YouTube at the time, which was SJWs, Social Justice Warriors. And I'm bringing this up as the first thing to talk about, because you've written a paper, which I've read, which I was quite impressed with, basically breaking down how SJWs operate, that culture of that operates as a kind of a religion. yes. Could you explain where you're coming from with that?
1: <laughs> There's a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of angles. I mean, the, the yeah. piece you're talking about is in Aereo magazine. I published it literally right before Christmas um, 2018, and it's close to or over 15,000 words. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's something bigger than a pamphlet, but smaller <laughs> than a book. Um, yes,
0: it was a read. <laughs> it, would be, it would
1: be considered a novella if it was, was fiction, it's, it's quite long and quite detailed. And I try to come at the, the question from a very wide variety of angles, um, one of which is, as you mentioned, I wrote a book called Everybody's Wrong About God, which was kind of a, on one level, a sociological survey of the way that uh, various moral communities operate. That was a term I learned reading Jonathan Haidt, uh, his moral psychology, and he drew it from uh, Emile Durkheim. So that'd be a very Durkheimian view, like, okay, so let's look at a religion as a social object, is something that sociologists would be interested in studying, and let's try to understand what collection of of behaviors and, and patterns of, of, of interaction uh, qualify something as being religious and not religious. And the very first thing I realized, and this was actually part of the impetus for Everybody's Wrong About God, which I had in 2013. This is a... Fortuitous time for recognizing these things, with all that was happening in the atheism movement. Well, what I recognized is that the social justice aspect of the atheism movement was acting in a way that I think, if Durkheim were looking at it, would say, "Well, this looks like a religion." And so that book actually details that argument, among other things. And uh, long and short is that you know I took I took that view, um, which is that you form a moral community. And then I attached to it more of Jonathan Haidt's stuff from his Moral Foundations work and uh, how how morality you know operates with people and binds communities together. Morality binds and blinds, is the statement he made uh, in in the Righteous Mind. And I combine that with what I started reading in the Psychology of Religion, and which it tries again to well, let's look at a typical religious believer or embedded within a religious group, what's the psychology going on there? And that they have a number of things happening. They have um, a need for meaning making, which includes lots of different things. They have a need for uh, a sense of control in life and they have a need for um, a sense of stability and in, in construction of community. And this creates kind of a, a huge variety of ideas. And I say they need what we all need those things, but pe- people specifically turn to the idea of a God to either create ground or um, philosophically ground or give substance to these kind of abstractions that uh, help them meet those needs. So, you know, you have the idea of like petitionary prayer. So, you pray to God, and God's gonna, you know, your mom gets cancer and you pray for your mom. Everybody pray for mom. Oh, what's going on there is you're, you're looking for, you're tapping into that need for control in an uncontrollable situation. And so you can, these patterns all kind of fit in, in the social justice context as well. They don't pray, you know, petitionary prayer, but they are doing things like um, trying to gain control over the way that issues of social justice play out in society. And they engage in hashtag campaigns and and, shouting people down, heckler's veto, that's called sometimes, where they engage in uh, a cancel culture to try to wash out views that they feel uh, contribute to an out-of-control bigotry system that needs to be stopped. And so there's a lot of parallels on the psychological level, a lot of parallels on the sociological level. And then over the next couple of years, so that would have been 14, 15, 13, 14, 15, doing that, I started looking more in terms of kind of what... What's the difference? You know, do they have a mythology? Religions always have some kind of a mythological core to them, and so I discovered the philosopher, Kolakowski, um, and I started reading his what is it, something of the something of myth. This is his book I forget, the presence of myth, something like that. And uh, so I start reading him, and I'm like, okay, the systemic bigotry thing, whether that's real or not, to any degree is immaterial. The way that this is being presented works in the same way that he's describing what's called a mythological core. So I come at it from that perspective as well. And then there's the organizational structure that starts to develop. And uh, in that long essay, I also talk, you know, organized religions are organized. I actually say there that the social justice thing is a disorganized religion. I would actually argue maybe that it's somewhere in between maybe quasi-organized if we want to add lots of syllables and lose all of the audience, but um, (laughs) that's all of those elements kind of come together to where this thing operates in a very kind of religious way and the parallels specifically to what is known in theological circles as an Augustinian construct uh, an Augustinian theology. Are really profound. What's really interesting is I had that confirmed for me after the fact. I've been saying that for a little while. It's, you know, what's that mean? It's based off of this idea of an original sin that you have to atone for and a lot of confession type behavior. What it, what was Augustine's book, you know, most famous work called Confessions. A lot of that sort of thing is necessary in order to get that atonement, blah, 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 to reckon with spiritual life, to do a constant. Long-term inner struggle, uh, ongoing, lifelong inner struggle of spiritual value, and so I, I was talking about it being an Augustinian construct, and this led some people in the Southern Baptist Convention to reach out to me and say, you know, that's how we describe it too. That this thing that's they 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 are using an Augustinian construct, and then they say, well, that's what we see from there too. And in fact, some of their theologians are promoting the inclusion of, of social justice critical race theory and intersectionality more specifically into the southern baptist convention now so you know woke conservative christians make of that what you will
0: and <laughs> i'm sorry i that's that's giving me a, that, i am i'm gonna have to think on that one for a minute that's that's yeah, it's, quite it's a interesting
1: and the, one of the arguments that they have given in favor of doing so is that it presents an augustinian construct so um the the idea that this has profound parallels with with um christian faith and faiths in general is a sociological or psychological object or um in particular when i say christian faiths, it's got a lot of parallels with calvinism um really make you kind of have to stop and pause and say you know what's actually going on here like on almost every level the parallels are profound although the differences are also significant so that was a really long ramble about the (laughs) the, it's a hard topic i didn't write fifteen thousand words because i thought i could get away with it with fewer
0: no of course and 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 it is complex and it's nuanced and there are a lot of levels to it Religion itself. I mean, I've argued that religion, just as a word, is so commonly misunderstood because mm-hmm. you have you have three basic definitions that are used, in, and and they are not interchangeable, but they act that way. The way people right. when people start using this word, because you have you have individual religious belief mm-hmm. as it as the word religion. Then you have um, the practices that people do the 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 rites, the rituals. The, 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 the behavior and then right. you have and that's called religion and then you have this whole this whole huge social construct with buildings and laws and rules and regulations and that's called organized religion exactly and, and so yeah
1: to give you an idea of how complicated it is for your listeners i was shocked to find out when i started reading actual textbooks in the psychology of religion like graduate level textbooks in the psychology of religion they almost all start off by taking great pains not to define religion and to explain why they won't even bother trying to define religion because every attempt they give will be wrong and somebody will criticize it to the point where you can't get anything done. So yeah, you are tapping into, it is a very, very complex uh, uh, concept. I now think that I have a much simpler way to explain what a religion is in a functional sense, um, which doesn't account for the fact that you just, you know that's sort of the second of the three things you said. and I can do it in a sentence, um, but it will upset people and it obviously doesn't catch everything. But I think it's kind of a, like what's the core piece um, of what's going on there is I actually think that religions are um, systems that people create to give moral law. So you have legal law and then you have moral law and moral law is what you attend to on a social level. Whereas um, legal law is, you know, a little bit more codified and, and everything. So all the stuff that, that, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God, all the stuff that that's supposed to be, well, this is, you know, these are the minimum things for society, that's legal law. And then these are the things we expect out of people. These are the norms that we want. That's a moral law. And a religion is a thing in the kind of the greatest generality that has various other features, but also that aims to provide and enforce a moral law.
0: That's an interesting definition, and, and if you remove the supernatural component from religion, it's a fairly workable definition. I spent actually. seven
1: years figuring that one out.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I that's that's quite good. Let me let me uh, just just since I like to run this by people from time to time, I have this fairly reductionist definition of faith. Okay. Uh, ideas you don't have to think about anymore.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, uh, that's not bad.
0: I mean that's pretty much where it goes. Now, with the SJWs, you know, I'm I'm particularly interested in this because I hit this. And and SJWs by the way is is I don't mean that as a derogatory term. I I mean that as it's just social justice warriors. It's it's if you want to take on that that label for yourself you know, go right ahead. Right. I'm not trying to insult all the people who are interested in social justice by using this term. And I, I know some people take it as an incendiary term. That's why I'm clarifying it.
1: And I Um, hasten to add for you there. I don't know if they started the use of that term, or if it was applied to them by people who didn't like their heavy duty activist tactics. But I do know that in the current environment, they have taken on the terms, um, climate warrior and equity warrior unto themselves. Those are not words that were applied to them by others. They call themselves like the extinction rebellion people in London call themselves climate justice warriors or climate warriors or eco warriors is another term more often eco warriors. And then uh, equity warriors is one I hear a lot in the educational sphere.
0: Ah, right. And equity of course has a, has its own definition we might get to in a little bit. Um, because it's not the same thing as equality, but but they they're they're in normal English they're synonyms, but in this world they are in this that we're talking about they are not um and, The thing that – the reason I'm bringing this up or that this even came into my world and and I thought it might be something to talk about with you specifically because of this paper is because of my own personal experience with it, I got very confused very quickly in my first year or two coming out as a content creator on YouTube and Mm -hmm. specifically an atheist content creator in that I am atheist slash agnostic. And I don't. I'm not militant. I don't make a big, huge thing about it. It's just I've came out of a very destructive religion and thought, you know, I'm going to give this whole religion thing a break for a little while. But then I run into this culture that is developing, this SJW culture, and this is in the days of atheism plus. And it suddenly became clear that there were certain things as a content creator I was going to have to be a little careful about. And mm-hmm. I was going to have to tiptoe around. Notice and, a few
1: blasphemy rules there. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. And that this was kind of a thing. And there there were big personalities. And there was a lot of arguing about this in the community and stuff. And I'm being new and being uncertain. And, and also, of course, you know recovering from Scientology, the last thing I wanted to do was go you know put my foot in it or, or step into something and, and have everybody hate me right away because I said something dumb. But at the same time, as time passed, I started becoming a bit more uncomfortable with this because it became clear to me that the value system, equality, civil rights, human rights, I mean, these were, I am gung-ho about those things. I am all about human rights. Yes. Uh, I, I preach tolerance, compassion, understanding, tolerance of belief. You know, I'm big on those things. And I thought... Of course, that that's the carpet ride that I was taking, getting into the SJW world, and then find out mm, eh, maybe not so much because I'm finding out that this is now a, it's sort of a censorship culture, and uh, I don't like that. I don't like censorship. <laughs> I don't like I don't like people telling me what I can and can't say, or you know that they're going to cancel me or this kind of thing. And so I've I, t- I pulled way back from it. And I just went okay, okay, we're gonna we're gonna not talk about these things now. And, yes, some of them are very relevant. Some of them even are directly connected with stuff I've been con- been concerned about or talking about coming out of Scientology because, of course, I'm all about cults. And cult comes from culture, and these things are all tied in with one another, right? So so that's why we're talking today. So having yeah. said all that, yeah. right? You, wow, you
1: you're a- in an interesting position, I, right? I have to say, because it's like – while you were just saying that, I thought, wow, it's so interesting to be able to talk to somebody who emerged into the atheism movement after Atheism Plus really started to take a take a hold. Um, for those of us who are around before that, it's, you know, we have obviously a different perspective, but to have just kind of l- jumped into this and that's what's happening, that's really fascinating. And then um, the fact that you come to this from a position where you know Scientology is going to give you a really, really interesting look at you know wait a minute what's going on here really fascinating i'm excited to get to talk to you about this
0: awesome awesome well i and i am excited to talk about it because i see structures here that obviously parallel earlier times in my life right yeah this but as you mentioned quasi organized i mean this is a bunch of disparate people with a bunch of very very different ideas you know except they're they seem to be united in anger they are inv- <laughs> you know. something
1: like anger and envy and grievance, which is why we ended up calling it grievance studies for the the papers that we wrote. And uh, it's almost like taking the, the seven deadly sins and like flipping them over or whatever. And it's like the seven deadly virtues or something. And it's like <laughs> they flipped them over uh, compassion, forgiveness. Like those things are not okay. Um, forgiveness in particular, not
0: okay. Big time. I have actually gotten into it this is not it connected i'm not i'm not tying these two things together and saying they're exactly the same but i got into it hardcore with the mantifa folk oh yeah um, because i started pushing um daryl davis who's a black man who was deconverted pick kkk members to the tune of like 200 of these guys i mean he's very serious about what he does and he's good he at sent it. me
1: a note the other day and i my jaw hit the table i was like what and he's like thank you for what you're doing I love your work I'm a big fan and I'm like I'm a big fan ah! <laughs>
0: wow that's awesome I was like
1: oh wow he <laughs> like thank <laughs> you for supporting me with you know because I, I always I bring him up he's great he's I mentioned in in how to have impossible conversations is like a corner like it, we even say it. it's like people say oh I could never talk to a racist and it's like bull crap. if Daryl Davis can deconvert clan members you can sit down and talk to somebody who, you know, maybe has some white privilege things going on that they're not thinking about. You know, you can actually have a conversation.
0: Exactly my point. And that's exactly where I was trying to go with the Antifa guys. Now this was on Twitter.
1: Well, they hate, know, so. they hate him.
0: <laughs> oh, they do. And this is what I found out. And I'm like, okay, so you guys are pushing back against racist, KKK, Nazis. You know, you want to you want to go out and do something effective to stop these people. Well, guess what? Here's a guy who's actually doing it. Guess what? He's also got black skin. And he's still doing it. Like, there's something to be learned here. This is amazing. Why don't you guys try following some example from this? I mean, if you really want to do away with this, and this is, of course, where I learned the hard way, right? Because then I got attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked. I mean, went on for three days, you know, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, Twitter, big deal. You know, I don't really care about Twitter attacks. But I just found it so interesting that it just came in a wave. I've never been attacked by Scientology the way I was attacked by Antifa. And I just thought, okay, these are people who really are just looking for an excuse. And maybe this is fundamental attribution error on my part, that I'm just assigning this to them now. But it it seemed pretty clear to me that, that... just going in and getting into it with neo Nazis is what these guys really wanted to do. They wanted to go mix it up with some baseball bats and some bricks. Mm. And I thought, okay, there's, you know, it, 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 as I have contemplated that maybe there are some psychotics and some sociopaths who just align themselves with terrorist groups or KKK groups because they're just looking for an excuse for violence, mm-hmm. why could the same not be true for the Antifa guys as well, right? Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm run into this stuff. And, and so it's very hypocritical. I, and I see think, it. Yeah, and I think that's part of this picture, you know, uh, because they, because, and this is where I got super, super, super confused as somebody who truly cares about human rights, cares about compassion, cares about people getting along in the world. That's all I really want is I want people getting along. Right. And now I'm being told I'm not doing it right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And now I'm being told that, that my skin color is a problem mm-hmm. and that my gender is a problem and that uh, the fact that I'm a straight white male is a problem. And I'm like, why are these things problems to my intent to make the world a better place? And after that, I couldn't think with it anymore. And that was why your paper started making more sense to me. And oh, I wow. can relate it to my cult experience because I went, these guys are saying one thing but they're kind of doing something else. And if you're if you're walking the walk, you know, if you're talking the talk and walking the walk, I got no argument with you. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's going on with all of these folks, and I'm and I'm concerned about that, to say the it's, least. It's just
1: about treating people with respect, <laughs> right. and, uh, Yeah, that's what you, that's definitely what you're demonstrating here. Um, it's it's a thing. It is a big big problem uh, that it. And that's kind of like been my theme for like the last, uh, I don't know, whatever, October, four or five months now, Um, September and October, I started hitting on it. It's like, you know, it's the, the thing. The, if you want to call it social justice or whatever, it's like, you can imagine it's like a package in a box you bought at the store, right? And you got the nice picture on the box and you, you know, you're excited to get it infomercial on TV or whatever. Then you open the box and what's inside is not what's on the picture on the, on the outside. It's like gremlins are coming out of the box. All of a sudden it is. And, and there's a lot of, I mean, I don't want to get deep with it immediately, but there's a lot of deep reasons for that. And a lot of them have to do with the fact that they are redefining our language.
0: They exactly.
1: They are using the words in a, I will use this phrase uh, at my peril. They are using the words in a cult specific way, but they're words that everybody thinks mean something else. And they are intentionally playing on that double meaning problem to where they know that the average person is going to hear racism, you know, as this, and I know they know this because I've read their books and they say they know this. Uh, Robin DiAngelo, for example, very, very famous for her book, White Fragility, in the book, White Fragility, explicitly says, well, if I call you a racist, you're going to think that that's the worst of all possible things. Oh, my gosh, you're going to freak out and blah, blah, blah. And if I don't mean it that way, I mean, she even says, I don't mean it the way that you're thinking. I mean it in a very specific other way. And so if that's you, she says, go ahead, take a deep breath, breathe, relax. That's not what I mean. And now I mean it in this very specific way. And then all through the whole thing, it's white people complicit in racism, white people complicit in racism. White people. They know that they're using a very particular specialized, as I said, cult specific usage of the word, say racist, but this applies to maybe 300 or more words at least. Um, they know they're using a very, very specific meaning of that word. And then they are happy to let the impact of the more common parlance meaning do the work for them. Exactly. It's very dirty. And it, uh, we, we talked about it and it comes in different forms. Like there's one where the word racism itself is used in two ways. Then there's what we talked about a moment ago with equity and equality. They're happy to let the confusion. Most people have to think that they're synonyms, even though they mean something that, that's not synonyms. So sometimes they change the definition of words. Sometimes they use similar words in a very specific way and they allow the common parlance confusion to do a lot of the work for them. And they are doing it intentionally.
0: Exactly. It's a form of doublespeak. It's also a cult characteristic uh, for anybody who's watched my channel for any length of time. You guys know this. It's called loaded language, Mm. right? You you specialize the language, you redefine the terms. This is nothing specific only to the SJW community. This goes on in tons and tons of groups out there. And and the difference between a cultic use, as we might say, versus a non-cultic use is, are you open, are you clear, is there informed, you know, are, are, are we clear about what we're doing here? Or, as you just described very specifically, are we using these words purposefully in a deceptive manner to change or reform people's thinking in a way we want them to be thinking by controlling the conversation, by controlling the language? So... Um, so loaded language is a thing. In fact, it's one of the most powerful tools Orwell spent his entire life writing about it. It's, mm. it's important stuff, you know. Um, let's step back a second because I want to trace this back to some roots, and that does go to academia. And first I want to talk mm-hmm. about academia a little bit. I've railed <laughs> – I've, I've, <laughs> I have encountered cult apologists in academia, so I've already got chips on my shoulder about – Certain academics in sociology, specifically psychology, so psychology less so, some, but sociology especially, because that's where the the new religious movement people are, and that's that's a whole branch of academia that acts as apologists uh, for right. destructive cults you kind of skipped out of academia you are degreed you are even you know you're a doctor and yet you're you haven't been involved in academia since 2010 can we talk a little bit about what prompted that
1: i mean it's boring (laughs) (laughs) there's no drama to it it was just just one of those every it's one of those everyday um family deals you know i was pulled one direction to continue my career in academia and pulled another direction to to do the right thing for the family and not drag them through stuff that would have been disruptive to that. And so I chose family over career. Um, it's not a dramatic story. There were issues in academia at the time. I, being in mathematics, was mostly not aware of the ones that are relevant to this. Uh, I was aware of the ones being in a conservative state where the state government was, you know, messing around with education budgets and cutting them back and restricting them and things like that. but uh i was not you know tapped into certainly anything in mathematics we were definitely not talking about anything to do with postmodernism. people ask me all the time oh you went to you went to the university of tennessee do you know so and so and i sit there blankly and i say is that person in the math department um because that's literally how it works it's i knew i think three physics professors and that's about as close to math as you can get and maybe you know two other professors that I had met in other walks of life that happened to also be. And I knew nobody outside of math. And we would have just looked down at this um, postmodernism stuff as and, and laughed and said that's stuff that happens in the humanities and probably been elitist like most science STEM type people can be and say I'm not even sure that stuff belongs here. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's like not real academia. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Show me the numbers. (laughs) I mean,
1: seriously, there's a, I just read a thing on Twitter. I'm sure it, I'm almost positive guessing that it comes from the nineties. I don't know if it's a true story or not. So we'll take it as apocryphal as somebody shared it. And the the young woman was saying that, uh, or the woman in the, it's a screenshotted picture. So the woman uh, in the, in the tweet said that she was thinking back to her Poet, one of her poetry professors, who had given up on the idea of words, and so they just went to the professor's house and ate dinner and pet the cats and played like children or something. And then for her final, they were supposed to bring in a poetic object instead of words, and she brought a potato because she didn't know what to do and got a B minus. Um, so, I mean, there was a, an aspect, you know, in the math department where we kind of knew that some people were doing that stuff. And I say very specifically, I can bet that that was in the 90s or early 2000s with a high degree of accuracy because that's when high postmodernism was a thing and that is high postmodernism um it's very unlikely that that it maybe is still happening but it's it's different now um but in math we certainly would not have known about that and would have just scoffed at the entire existence of a program that could allow that um
0: Totally, we are
1: i mean there's that thing the what well, xkcd comic that came out a long time ago where it was like not rigor but it was like act basically in a sense the, the the implied point is how snobbish they are about being better than other academic fields and it's like you know they got them all lined up in a row like real close together like sociology psychology biology chemistry a little bit bigger of a jump physics and then it's like way over here mathematicians hey you guys um
0: Right. But, you know, fortunately, there's no bias there. It's a completely objective view. Well, I mean,
1: every department does it. So <laughs> it's course. like the physicists do the same thing and <laughs> explain why wrong. they're better than the stupid mathematicians who don't even care about reality.
0: Exactly. And, and we then, don't. So, and then all the people in the humanities are like, hello, it starts with human. Of course, we're the most important. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so
1: I didn't leave for some dramatic reason, though. I just left because of the for, for family obligations. Um, Fair enough. I don't have a cool story. I did say on Rogan that I saw the writing on the wall. Um, A lot of the writing on the wall at the time that I was seeing was that the university was getting bogged down in a lot of political stuff uh, that like, um, not just like the state politics stuff, but the growth of the uh, administrative bloat, the Mm. rapid expansion of of college tuitions, the fact that uh, the publisher Parish culture was you know really drilling people into doing different kinds of research and different focuses it was already you know a significant problem by 2010 all of those things watching you know the university just jack up tuition another whatever x percent every year while they're building a like 13 million dollar athletic center on campus to attract more students because it has like a bowling alley and an archery range in it or something and it's just like this has nothing to do with with academics and, you know, the administrative thing. So I saw that writing on the wall when I said that i Rogan, that's what I meant, but I can understand why it would have come across that I was talking about the social justice writing on the wall. Um,
0: yeah. You saw the bigger it, problems.
1: I saw, I mean, so I think I, I talked, I say this a lot. I think it's hard to paint some, paint yourself into a corner. It happens a lot, but it's kind of difficult to properly paint yourself into a corner um, and somehow the university has gone, this is a math thing because it's like multidimensional. They've somehow painted themselves into about four or five at once, which is really a, a feat. You know, they've got this tuition thing. They've got the administrative bloat thing. They've got the social justice thing. And, you know, that's own administrative apparatus thing. They got the student services focused, running the university like a business. They've really concentrated, you know, four or five problems that I don't know how they're going to, I mean, I hope they fix them. I don't know how they're going to fix them because they're all kind of tied together, but they're really painted into some corners right now. And I saw the not social justice ones primarily in 2009, 10. And, you know, I mean, there was weird stuff going on. There were protests on campus that were starting up, but I, you know, I just ignored them.
0: Right, right. Well, let's let's tackle a couple of these things that have come up because one of them that seems to be very prevalent, certainly uh, in the you know discussion sphere, um, postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Now, now I know that this is a term that is that is harder to define than religion. Uh, <laughs> Correct. You know, it's uh, so I'm not looking for some strict, straight up definition or something. But what I'm, what, but you know, what is. We, we talk about power structures, we talk about power dynamics, we talk about imbalances of power. Um, you know, everything in society somehow has to come down to this kind of modeling. And here's how let me start off first by saying that I personally have come to learn recently, and I, 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 I don't put myself on some dais because of this, I'm just saying I think it's important that when you're looking at the world, you're looking at a chaos of, of, of motion and, and random particles and things moving around and people and intentions and motivations. You, you know, when you're looking at a society, you're looking at chaos. You're looking at a lot of crazy stuff that's that's very random. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's like an ocean and, you know, and, and all these particles and it's kind of moving along through time and space. So we as human beings look at this and frame it. We frame it. We have a perspective, and we and we put a frame on a thing, and we go, this is how this picture of reality makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us lose the plot because we don't realize that's what we're doing, and we think that mm-hmm. our framings are somehow a, a measure of objective reality, are somehow a mirror into how things really are, quote, unquote, and they're not. They're not even remotely that. They're just how we are seeing things at this time in this place. That all being said, I think postmodernism is a way of framing reality, and I think it's a little bit of a goofy one, but I've but but let's go ahead and talk about what it is and then maybe the audience can come to their conclusions about it. So what is it? Where did it come from? <laughs> so part
1: of what you just said is is actually a very postmodern view. The idea so oh. we can actually go right off of what you were saying. Oh, cool. The idea that that we are framing our, our understanding of reality and that we can mistake our framing for an accurate description of reality. Um, and more importantly, if we want to make it very specifically postmodern, that we can fail to realize that our framing of reality is contingent upon not just who we are as individuals, but also the cultural milieu that we're embedded in historically and, and um, uh, geographically. So, you know. I didn't
0: realize I was a postmodernist.
1: Yeah, most of us are now. Um,
0: <laughs> or we taken some of it on? I, so I, I, yeah, I don't know where I can. I mean, I, I I just said all that, but I didn't say it quoting a text or something. I just
1: I was like, yeah. oh, he's sending me down a primrose path. I know what's going on here. <laughs> no, so because I do actually, to a point, I do I agree with with a lot of that point of view. So what I would say is that the postmodern framing is, and you are right, it is a framing that tries to pretend it's not a framing. Uh, it is a framing that takes that view to an absurd extreme, right? Rather than recognizing the kernels of truth that are there and then figuring out what to do with them in a responsible manner, it becomes kind of cynical and throws its hands up and says, well, knowledge is impossible. Knowledge is just a construct of the culture that, that claims to say, this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And so because cultures are, and this is the other half of it, inherently political in nature, Politics are baked into knowledge. That would be essentially Michel Foucault in a sentence. Politics are baked into knowledge, and um, in fact, he said that power and knowledge, or politics and knowledge, therefore are the same thing. The power and knowledge. It's one object looked at from two different angles.
0: Okay, and- so I'm gonna distance myself from that right now because I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I I'm eschewing any sort of postmodern label right now because that's crazy talk.
1: So that's one that. So again, this gets complicated because the roots of it are pretty deep and they come in different angles. So Michel Foucault was very concerned with the the, the role of power and how power and politics are intertwined with knowledge. Um, then you had Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida was very interested in how language is essentially the the language is is also built out of power relations that are tucked in in between words. For example. And this is one, one part of Derrida. I don't want to oversimplify Derrida. I had a lot of ideas, but one part of his ideas would be like that there's a relationship between the words man and woman that inherently privileges one over the other. So words tend to appear in hierarchical pairs. And so he had this really in deep look at language, but he also, and it's very important to, and it gets ugly, I'm sorry. It's very important to point out that these guys were what are now called, although they rejected it, post-structuralists who had derived their thoughts and then, kind of rebelled against the thoughts of the structuralist movement. So that started with this uh, with Levi Strauss. Structuralism is more or less completely discredited. But uh, Althusser was a contemporary and colleague of Derrida, and was Foucault's Ph.D. advisor, and he was a structuralist. So these guys believed that the way structuralism works is that there's a structure to society, mostly that's that that is reflected in this back and forth, kind of reflexively reflected in in. Um, the structure of language and that defines how a society thinks and what it is and how it develops and so these guys were kind of like well let's look at those structures and then criticize how power is unjustly manifesting in them and so the the society side is Foucault and the language side is Derrida that's an oversimplification. You had these other guys uh, Baudrillard for example Jean Baudrillard who was very concerned that everything is fake. Everything's a consumer product, a replica of a replica of a replica of a mass production TV shows that are staged. Blah blah. Everything's fake. Everything's fake. So he called these things um, simulations and simulacra. And more or less the idea, if you want to know what Baudrillard denied it actually, but if you want to understand what Baudrillard's philosophy was all about is essentially Baudrillard believed we lived in the matrix. The matrix was written to be an artistic depiction of Baudrillard's philosophy. And so then you had uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard and his whole thing was like to mess around with language, but his big famous statement that characterized the postmodern condition, it was the title of his 1979 book, um, is a skepticism toward metanarratives. So that's those frames we were talking about. It's generally being skeptical that any of those frames is correct. Um, when I said earlier that you know we, we were talking about very generally that a religion is what gives you moral law. And you, somebody, you know, an astute listener, because somebody is, will be like, wait a minute, liberal societies have that too. So that's kind of a religion as well. And so what...
0: Yeah, thank what, what Leotard <laughs> was
1: basically saying is that we should be skeptical of all such things and abandon the quest for these big unifying narratives and go back to local mini narratives, like basically ep- epistemological tribalism or something. And so you have this huge kind of like cynical, skeptical view of the world. As for where it came from, well, we're looking at the collapse of colonialism. We're looking at the failure of, or we're looking at the, the great world wars. We're looking at the the failure of Marxism. These are all post-communist. Um, they literally do fall into a school of thought called post-Marxism, which believe that Marxism didn't work. And so you have people who are deeply cynical about um, and skeptical of, of capitalism, and of Western society and of religion and of liberalism, coming from their communist roots. But then they're also skeptical of communism now because communism didn't work. So they're just kind of nothing works, nihilistic despair, and that's sort of what what it boils down to. Well, um, I'll tell
0: I'll, I will comment right now that that attitude or that emotional response is rife throughout the the social media storms that you see. Yes. That, that that come from this is it's, it is, it is there is a lot of nihilism or, or yes. it, there's nothing that can be done about it. This was actually just reflected last week when I did those. I did a couple surveys. There's a couple of Twitter surveys. Uh, yeah. I didn't know if they were even going to come up in the show here, but you kind of inspired them. And I asked, you know, hey, can racism be solved, basically? And the answer that came back was, you know, about 20, 30 percent, if I remember right, were like, yeah, no, no, this can't be solved. No, it can't be solved, no,
1: because the you know, first- the first pillar of critical race theory, which is mainstreamed, and it is a postmodern approach, kind of, we can talk about that too. It's mostly, or men, it's deeply postmodern now. Uh, but it, for the first pillar is that racism is ordinary and permanent in American society. And yep. that's in a, a handful of different sources that, that list, they tend to list what it's about critical race theorists do. Queer theorists don't, they hate lists. But um, the critical race theorists came out of legal scholarship. They love lists. So that's the first pillar that they call it. The, I mean, that would be Richard Delgado and Gene Stefancic uh, call it the first pillar of critical race theory is that racism is ordinary and permanent in American society. Um, so no, permanent means can't be fixed. Uh, exactly. So look, but why that's still showing up? What, so this is the book, Cynical Theories, that Helen and I wrote, is mm-hmm. to try to convince people of this point that postmodernism didn't die. Philosophers think it died in the 90s. Um, And it kind of did, but it mostly didn't. Yes, it did not. Oh, no. I mean, maybe
0: philosophy has moved on at the ivory tower level, but to the general people, that is the philosophy, you know, populaire right right now. I mean, it's all over the place. So the book exists
1: to to argue that it didn't die, it mutated. Its original high deconstructive phase that we called it did die out. Mm -hmm. That's the silly papers that, you know, uh, where you had Alan Sokol and, and John Brickmont doing uh, their, their mockeries of, you know, in the 90s. Uh, Alan Sokol's original hoax paper was, a, was a, to a postmodern journal. Uh, heavily leaned on uh, Leotard, for example. So what we wanted to do is convey the way that postmodernism has not died, but rather changed. And so we, we tried to boil it down to, so this is a good way to characterize postmodernism, to two essential principles that make something postmodern. And we came up with four essential themes that, that explains it. And I didn't plan to talk about the book a lot. So I'm, I didn't, I tend to forget, I have a bad habit. I still feel bad. I still feel bad. I, I'm not a conservative. I st- still feel bad for Rick Perry where he was in that presidential debate and he had three departments he wanted to destroy and he forgot the third one. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I always have things and I forget them. So there are four themes and I almost always will only remember three of them. So without looking at them. So I didn't prepare this, but the two principles are one regarding to how, how postmodernism looks at knowledge. And it is that objective knowledge is not possible. It is radical skepticism with with regard to objective knowledge. All knowledge is a cultural product. It is, it belongs to that culture. And if one culture says this is true and another culture says that is true, there's no method that's just two cultural approaches and they have no method to adjudicate that truth. So you can say, what about science? They say, no, no, that's a cultural product of one of those cultures.
0: And that's so, where and that's where they lose the plot because completely. there are differences in 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 knowledge types there are differences there's classifications Correct. there's ways we can do this we and actually yeah, there's know some relative, things about, there's about relative truths with morality ethics religion but there's not relative truths when it comes to two plus two equals four or not yet you know
1: and so, <laughs> so um the second principle is political, and that's where you were talking about where so these systems of knowledge, because of Foucault, the knowledge and power link, these systems of power permeate society, create injustice, and there is a need to uh either rectify or depending on who's doing it, rectify or invert those those injustices. So that's a postmodern political principle. So knowledge, objective knowledge is impossible, so everything comes down to a political struggle a power struggle and that power struggle is genuine genuinely unfair to certain groups in society and that has to be critiqued so those are the two core principles of postmodernism and the themes if i can remember them we'll see what happens one is the blurring of boundaries which would include in fact um where you call things like light pollution genocide. So you blur the boundaries on what words mean, you blur the boundaries between what male and female is. Uh, so the blurring of categories that you would have. Um, so that's the first principle, blurring of boundaries, a focus on the power of language. That's where we talked about Derrida a few minutes ago. Um, the idea that language shapes reality, shapes social reality, but because everything's a cultural product, therefore also material reality, or the only thing that we can know about material reality. So focus on, that's why you see people so obsessed about um using politically correct language or changing the terminology into oh, problem solved. You know, there's like almost a joke. I'm trying to think of the example I saw in education a couple of months ago where they decided, you know, such and such problem was happening. Well we'll just change the word so that nobody's offended by it. And it's like that's their solution. Like it's just going to fix the problem. Um,
0: well it's a very it's a very um almost Norwellian solution in it is. that if you remove the word from the language, it's not exactly what they're pushing, but it's kind of, it goes in this direction of if you remove the word from the language, you remove the concept from people's abilities to think of Correct. that anymore. And therefore you're controlling populations.
1: There there's an element to that. They actually yeah. and they think that language socializes people in you know the way we use language, the way that we talk about things, they call those discourses. The way things are allowed to be talked about legitimately, define how people think and understand things. And so if you change the discourses, you change society because you change how people are socialized. And so there is that element to it there that really is. It's also because they are ultimately deeply structuralist in their orientation and believe that the society is created out of the language and that meaning is as Derrida's point was that language or that meaning is infinitely deferred in language words only exist in relationship to other words the example usually given is the word dog that you can under, you cannot say dog look at a dog and understand dog you have to understand you know how a dog is not a cat not a wall not a pillow not a not a window not the floor you have to understand how dog relates to all the other words as well in order to understand what dog means yeah yeah sure yeah My, i'm like
0: i'm sitting here nodding as he's talking and then i'm sort of going uh wait a minute no there now that's, we're going off into and that's, that's like how they, like that's this how is they the, you. yeah this is the thing is they'll take a piece of true information that's this long and then they'll add this to it you know and you're like okay i, I i'm good yeah i'm with yeah you, I'm yeah, with yeah, you. yeah. So wait you a minute are, what wait what w- and are already well, hold gone. Gone. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. And that's how they get you though because this is this is how this stuff works right as you is you give you know uh, well in Scientology it's the, it's, the, it's the acceptable truth you tell enough that you'll get agreement and then maybe you tack this on at that moment. Maybe you don't, but it's uh-huh. always there in your head. And you're taking them yep, 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 yep. down this road that same includes tactics. this whole other thing. And it's same not, tactics. yeah, it's the same. This is this is why this interests me so much. In case anybody hasn't clued in yet, <laughs> why I'm, why we're doing this show. It's because this is culty. This is how this stuff works. The other you know. two,
1: because I remember them both, and I can say them before I forget them are cultural relativism and the forwarding of group identity and denial of both universalism and individualism,
0: hmm.
1: which is a complicated idea. Cultural relativism's, relativism is easy. And we've actually already kind of mentioned that, that you can't compare one culture to another in any regard. Um, you can't say that one culture is better than another and so on. Uh, and that applies even to systems of knowledge, which is because of the postmodern approach to these things. Uh, knowledge is a cultural product, therefore no one can judge from one to another. And um, the, the group identity thing, it's almost like you wanna think, uh, the Chinese are really good for this, in fact that you got three levels. Most people you know, aren't thinking, so you got humanity at the universal. We are all humans, we are all one, that kind of total universalism. Then you have the I am me, you are you you know, individual level, each person is their own person. And then there's this middle level, this social level, where we actually do spend a lot of time. This is one of those places where, again, you kind of go along with it and you're like, oh yeah. But the thing is, is that they, rather than saying that there's some weird salience to all three of those levels, you know, your group identities in some regard matter. I think they matter a lot, but I think that the, the how you define the groups also matters and doing so by just demographics is a stupid way to do it. Um, human universality also matters. We're all human. And then, I mean, you could even go further if you want, we're all living, all the living things are alive. And so you could go further, whatever, all the animals, whatever you want to do. And then there's the individual thing also matters, but what they're trying, they, they actually say that universalism and individualism are ideologies created by the dominant to keep people from realizing their group identity. Because if they realize their group identity, then they would want to do group identity politics. For their own interests and so they're trying to like get the whole they're trying to put everything in that middle layer and ignore the the universal and individual layers completely
0: yeah this is definitely agenda driven i mean it seems pretty clear at this point that this is cart before the horse kind of thinking and that's where we and we will and we'll get to the intellectual dishonesty of this because we've already we already had, had one spoiler of the language aspect of this and that's kind of the other spoiler, right? As this is going in this in this direction, um, let's let me ask you something about academia. Let me pull back for a second because you know there's this wall between the general public and academia, and 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 a lot of this problem that we're sitting here talking about, that you guys expose that that people hear about. They hear about it in this distant sort of way. It's something going on in these ivory towers, intellectuals arguing with intellectuals. Who cares, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and they, of course, you know, we're, we're presenting the problem here that, no, this is down, this is filtering down to the common people, and they are taking these ideas and running with them without even really recognizing what they're doing. But, there, but this speaks to a different problem, and maybe a longer-term one, and maybe it's status, maybe it's social hierarchies, I don't know. But the language of academia is such a barrier for people. And you're not in <laughs> academia, so I wanted to ask you from a critical point of view, like, what's up with that? Is, I mean, is it all about status-making? <sighs> or Because you think,
1: sure, okay, we're going to use
0: an exact word to get an exact concept across, yes. but that's not what this is about no so there's a lot there's a lot going on here let's try to do it quick yeah
1: there is a degree where you are just trying to be very accurate and i think you're going to see that typically in the sciences um it was certainly true in mathematics
0: like the hard sciences yes
1: there was a there's a high premium put on very clear writing but very specialized terminology i mean mathematics is famous for the symbols nobody can even read it's just an economy to writing with them they're very helpful uh I am a huge proponent of them, but you do. It is it is a barrier to entry, and so there is a specialized terminology thing. Now, when you get to the humanities, it's a different ballgame, and even maybe the social sciences, because you don't have that. And if you read CP uh, Snow, wrote a book called The Two Cultures in the nineteen fifties, and he started talking about how the humanities philosophical culture was trying to emulate that high precision of the uh, of the sciences, of the, the, the what we would now call the STEM fields. And so there was a premium there. And plus, when you look at postmodernism, for example, and there, there's one more thread, the fashion in France at the time was to to write this, these very long, complicated, difficult sentences. And it was a, a status bearing way to show how smart you were. Of course, we also, it's worth bringing up at this point that the reason nobody can spell any word in French is because of the French designed the written French language to be hard to spell so that the commoners would not be able to spell it, wouldn't be able to write. That was also intentional. When we look at this stuff also though, it's not purely postmodern. It's also got an element that derives from critical theory. And critical theory came from what's called the Frankfurt School, uh, the Institute for Social Research that was founded in Frankfurt in Germany, moved to New York City. It moved somewhere else in between, and I forget where, um, briefly, because of the world wars. Um, founded by Georg uh, Lukacs, and then eventually you had um, Max Horkheimer, Walter Benjamin, and Theodore Adorno. as kind of the first big guard there. They actually openly explained that they were criticized for using very impenetrable language for their criticism. And they explained openly, kind of like the postmodernists where there was this like flair to it, that um, they said that the, the common language, everyday speech, is infected with, a, with the hegemonic power. And so that they had to use this high-minded language to get away from that and to distinguish themselves from it. And I think that these forces combined to make this very jargon-rich, complicated language, um, that we see in, in these fields now. But there's an additional one other element I wanna add in is if you've ever seen George Carlin's skit about politically correct language, George Carlin was tapping into something there. For those of you people who haven't seen it, it's, you should look it up, it's not hard to find. Um, it's maybe nine minutes or something. But uh, he has at the be- somewhere near the beginning of the skit, he talks about the phrase shell shock from world war one and he's like you hear it it even kind of hurts you know what it is and then it battle fatigue and something else and something a post-traumatic stress disorder and he's like it's got eight syllables and a hyphen and you know and there's something he talks actually about how that sterilizes the language and so if you are actually working in a culture now where you look at like the critical theory and and the the not so much with the with the postmodern thing, which was mostly flourish and flair, but then you start looking at the, the, the critical theory plus this really insistent view that systemic power is everywhere and that language, like colorful language contains potential harms. The, the idea would be to make the language as gray and colorless as possible. And how do you do that? More syllables and more hyphens. So you can't talk about willful ignorance, which is its own concept. And they do talk about it, by the way, on like every page that they write. That was a concept devised explicitly, I think, in a book called The Racial Contract by Charles Mills. It was developed by uh, Nancy Tuana and somebody, Sullivan, more in like 2006 and 7. And then it got, in 2017, Alison Bailey wrote a paper. So you can see this trend, right? And she says, one variety of willful ignorance is privilege-preserving epistemic pushback. So now you've got at least one word nobody knows, epistemic. We can count the number of syllables, we have a hyphen, it's four total words strung together. And you can see that same pattern, willful ignorance, and she says it's a variety of willful ignorance where blah, 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 blah. And so you can see that, that tendency to just make the language as, as gray, oatmeal, bland, sterile as possible. So you have kind of a lot of things going on, but it's definitely a cultural feature. If we look at um, investigating this, this group kind of as anthropologists, it is a very distinguishing cultural feature, kind of like you can tell, you know, all your radical feminists have the same haircut and glasses. They just do. And, you know, then there's the other kind of branch of these woke, especially woke women, who um, dip more deeply into sociology, but mostly theoretical sociology, and they have the the same glasses, and they usually have kind of the same, you know, fairly attractive haircut, you know, but very clean, almost not, I don't, it's not librarian. I don't know the look, but there's a look, you know, the look. And so it's the same thing happens within, you know, this is how people, this is again, that moral community thing. This is that, that, that tribal thing. This is how people actually do distinguish themselves as members of various groups. Uh, Appearance dialect though, is a huge one. And so developing your own way of speaking, own manner of speaking, your own uh, kind of, even you know, construction of language is going to be extraordinarily indicative that you have kind of a, a, a group uh, that, that's then going to have, you know, its pressures are to distinguish itself from other social groups and then to jockey for hierarchy within that group. And so they're going to play games with, those, with, with the language, the way they speak, the syllables, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of pressures that have, have definitely created a very unique look and feel to their language as well. Um, I don't know that it's easy to say that it's, you know, oh, it's intentional this or it's, it's the status seeking that. I think there's elements of all of it, but I do have to go back to, and I don't remember which one it was, if it wasn't Horkheimer, I don't think. The original, I mean, we're talking like 1930s, the original critical theorists saying, no, no, we have to use this very specialized complicated language and sentence structure because it, uh, avoids the power dynamics in simpler language
0: wow well i was just looking here i couldn't dig it up right now but having done a survey based on that exact statement you made about the one of the pillars of critical theory mm-hmm. or race theory that 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 critical um, race theory race yeah. is
1: ordinary and permanent in american society
0: yes i simply asked on twitter my followers mostly liberal um is this true do you agree with this statement? It's all I, it's all I put up there. And I think it was like 30, 40%. Wow. Yeah, it was quite high. I was a little huh. concerned about that. See, I'm, I'm, this is I another point, right? Yeah. Cause I
1: get, I get dumped on a lot for this that people think I've lost my marbles and maybe I have, I don't know. But the thing is, is people, people, and I, I said this on Twitter recently, people said it was a good analogy. People are, I, I have reached a point now where I understand the theory well enough. And I've read enough of it to where when I actually talk about what's in the theory, people think I'm making it up. People are like, ah, oh, the people I know don't believe any of that. They believe something simpler. And it's like, well, this is as though I've now dug into the theology of some religion very deeply. And I know the theology and I know that the theology filters down through whatever an actual pastor reached out to me and told me that the, what, what I'm looking for is that you have the, the theology that's happening. And then you have that the, the flock, the people who are going to church under that, Particular theology are only hearing liturgy, so this is they hear the liturgy. They take up a lot of these ideas, but they're not getting, you know, unless they go and read Robin D'Angelo, they're not getting that pure unadulterated stuff. And if they are reading D'Angelo, because her book was a bestseller and it gets recommended all the time, they've taken on a lot more of it. But they're probably not reading Barbara Applebaum or Apple uh, Barbara Applebaum is a kind of a giant in the field, but nobody's read her. Um, very philosophical, very difficult. They're probably not reading her. They're probably not reading Charles Mills. They're probably not reading any of these kind of more specific, uh, harder theory books. And unless they're assigned as textbooks, they're not reading, you know, Delgado and Stefanczyk's Introduction to Critical Race Theory. They're not reading something like Anderson's Introduction to Postmodernism. Uh, or mikhail's introduction to postmodernism—they're probably not reading that stuff, and so they—they they don't realize that they've taken up a lot of it. But it's the same way that your average churchgoer pretty much doesn't know shit about the Bible.
0: Exactly, and it's true. I mean, let's be—let's just be clear. It's not a, its not even necessarily an insult. It's just how information is passed on from one exactly. place to another this is this isn't about how stupid religious believers are this is about how no. information passes it, it, you know
1: nobody has time to be a specialist in everything so your theologian right. is your specialist your theologian passes it down in whatever form but then you have the next level you know I don't want to like cheapen it and say well your pastor's the middleman. But in a sense, that's the pastor's job is to take it, to, to be able to take in what the, theolo- the theologian is writing, understand it pretty well, and more importantly, communicate, maybe even understand it totally, and then communicate its essence to a lay pastor, or pastor, uh, I can't think of the word, uh, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the lay church, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, flock, the, the lay church, who is then going to take what they take from it. Maybe they're going to go read some of it on their own. Maybe they're not. And so they don't know maybe the uh, ransom. They don't know all of the theology built into say the, the ransom theory of atonement of sin, of original sin. But if they're the, if they're belonging to a church and most don't belong to that church that that tradition anymore. But if they belong to a church whose theologians prescribe that and whose whose pastors communicate that, they're going to pick up elements of it. And then when they talk about why it's important to believe in Jesus. They're going to give you some version. Some of that is going to have made it to them, and that it's like you said, it's how information is is transmitted from the specialist to the laity, and everybody pretty much outside of their own in, in, special uh, their special group their, their speciality uh, is is a lay person, right? You, I don't know what you do for a living, so if I get you wrong on this, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> you may be I am a lay person with plumbing I don't have a damn clue but I can tell you that any given plumber that I call who didn't just start yesterday can tell me you know 85 different kinds of pipe every different kind of fitting the kind of tape and glue and why they work in this case and not in that case and why that one can't get hot water on it they know so much crap And then they can tell me about it and I'm like, oh yeah, well, you got to put that stuff on the threads and you know, that's my version. That's what I get out of that, you know? And so that's how knowledge transmission works to lay groups. And that's, but the theology is in the church filtering down and the thing that the people are repeating will be some understanding, some, some variation on, on, or will be heavily colored by how that theology actually works. So on Twitter, I get a lot of crap because you know I'm saying critical race theory says blah, blah, blah. And people say, well, nobody says that. But then you do a survey and like 30, 40% of your people are like, mm, I, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's making it you know more deeply than, than a lot of people do. Now, if you put the second pillar of critical race theory, I bet you fewer of them would agree, but you'd still get a lot. Second pillar of critical race theory is interest convergence, which is the idea that powerful groups in society, you know, dog whistle white people, Um, powerful groups in society or dominant groups in society only give rights and opportunities to minoritized or oppressed groups in society when it is also in their best interest to do so. So a powerful group will never give a white, a white group, white society will never give black people more opportunities unless the white people have figured out how it's to their benefit too. That's the second pillar of critical race theory.
0: And this is empirically, historically, not true. I mean, I, I you, you say that, and I immediately think of the civil rights movement. I think of women's lib. I think oh, they, of, they've you know, written
1: books and books and books explaining how all of that was, that white right. people realized that they would look better for economic markets in Europe, or they realized that it would create greater economic success for the country itself. The whole raise all boats, well, that raises your boat too, white man. And so... You know you can't it's always got to be in your interest somehow and of course that makes it impossible for you to do anything right because let's say that they call you to allyship or solidarity and you do exactly what they tell you And then what do they come back with? Well, you only did that so you could position yourself as a good white person. And I say good white person as though it's not a technical term. It is a technical term. Uh, There is a book called good white people that spends something by some Shannon Sullivan or somebody Sullivan S Sullivan that came out in 2018. I think uh, that spends like 200 pages just railing on white progressives. And then the same names I keep mentioning, Uh, robin d'angelo barbara applebaum allison bailey page after page after page after page after page talking about how white progressives white liberals are the primary people who uphold
0: racism because
1: they pretend they're not
0: wow Mm -hmm. this uh let me let me further clarify for everybody out there because um, I, I tend to, I, I feel like I, I, I sort of overexplain myself, but I, then, I, then I see some of the comments and I think, no, I, I have not over-explained myself at all. So <laughs> so, let me, so let me please overexplain explain again. Um, you know, very, very apt analogy you just made in terms of the, the whole thing we just talked about with, with religious, with the Bible or deep religious texts that not everybody's going to go read. And even if they do, are they going to understand it at the same level as the guy who went to seminary, right, and studied it for four years and, and all this, and, and it's his daily bread and butter? You know, no, they're probably not. Um, we rely on, we could call ministers or, or priests r- religious communicators in the same way that we have Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye as science communicators, people we have to have there who we expect are going to know as communicators something about the subject, Mm-hmm. We we hope they truly understand the subject because we want them to communicate it in all its glory to us, but we want them to communicate it to us in such a way that we can understand it. Yes. And, and this is a necessary part of the bridge between specialist fields, ivory tower, whatever you want to call it, and the common man, right? The, the, the lay yep. person. None of us, you know, this is where this is where we this is how societies are structured. We have to have things this way, or uh, everybody has to super super specialize in everything, and we don't have the great power for that. Now, that's a thing. The danger here, and the thir- and the thing that I'm that I'm that we're doing this podcast for, and the reason we're highlighting this is because you can have this body of knowledge. Critical race theory, let's say. I'm just throwing mm-hmm. it out there as a, as no, sure, a, sure, know, whatever. That could be complete balderdash. The entire topic is just total horseshit. And people at the lower levels, that the lay, the lay people, are like, well, I don't care. I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I don't hear anything about that. You, you show me quotes from that, and it's crazy. And I agree, that's crazy. But what they don't realize is how much of that is filtering down to their thinking. Right. That they're not aware, that that they're not being told that's what it is. That's where it's coming from.
1: Exactly. Under a rubric of, I just want to be a good person.
0: Exactly. And and I'll give you an example Um, of a very generalized concept, of course. It's been rife throughout everything you've cited. White people are the bad guys, right? White men, especially, you know, straight white male Absolute bad guy, irredeemable, you know, original sin, really. It's their version of original sin. It is. All, so here's a statement. Uh, you guys uh, said this on Joe Rogan, right? All white males are guilty until proven innocent. I'll bet you I'd get a percentage of people who would agree with that statement if I threw it up on Twitter right now. I mean, Because it's filtered down into the society from this core academic sort of field of study and philosophy right. that we've been talking about here i mean I don't know. so you...
1: that book that I've, I've mentioned a few times barbara applebaum the book's mm-hmm. title is being uh white being good You're something something white complicity something white ignorance so you can look it up if you want to read it it's horrifying and but, so this thing starts off with explaining why the you know the the view of why all Germans are complicit with the the crimes of the Nazis, and then the entire purpose of the book is to explain um that whites like the the definition, the concept as a as a philosoph- philosophical object of complicity needs to be expanded to where you know it starts off by talking about, oh well, you're complicit, say in a crime, let's say that you know you so you're if you're an accomplice right so the the guy goes and robs the bank and you either give him the car to do it or you know you call and make the distracting phone call so he can pull it off or something you know whatever it is so you actually do that oh that or, or are you complicit and then you can kind of go back to the so- socratic cuz you cuz you willfully contributed to the thing so you're complicit right so that's what an accomplice is then it says well that's not enough so That's not enough to understand complicity. So what if, you know, they, you were the guy who sold the person, the gun that they used to hold up the bank. And so the, you know, well, what if the question becomes, well, what if, um, you know, you knew the person was going to rob the bank. So complicity, right? So that's like, I think that's actually going back to Carl Jackson pointed out that there's some complicity there. There's some moral responsibility there because you are willfully contributing. So Applebaum's like, that's not enough. And she spends just chapter after chapter expanding the view of complicity and tells you why from like the third page, which is because the system of white privilege, the system of racism, white people benefit from that even though they don't intend to. And so you have to get away from any intention or knowledge or whatever in order to be complicit. And so that's why she's talking about ignorance and how there's all this white ignorance. Um, White people are ideologically bent to be ignorant of the privilege and of the system of racism, of the realities of race, because that allows them to pretend that they're not complicit in this. And so the whole book is an expansion of complicity on exactly the line that we said in Rogan in a sentence. White people are guilty because they're complicit until they're proven innocent. And how do you prove yourself innocent? They prescribe it again and again. You have to take on a program of anti-racism. I don't mean that in the general sense, like I'm against racism. I mean that in their specific sense, which they describe as an ongoing and lifelong commitment to self-reflection, self-critique, and activism. It is a specific thing. That is, I didn't make that definition up, (laughs) by the way. A life, an ongoing and lifelong commitment. I think I'm quoting Robin DiAngelo when I say it that way to self reflection, self critique, and activism. That's what it means to be anti racist. Sounds like a religious practice, by the way.
0: (laughs) You think? By the way, this is, uh, you can find all of this in the book Being White, Being Good, White Complicity, White Moral Responsibility, and Social Justice Pedagogy. That's it. That's, That's it. the name of the book. And uh, Barbara Applebaum, by the way, uh, at least according to the photo I can find of her, is pretty white.
1: You will notice that that happens a lot. Mm. Robin DiAngelo, also white. Allison Bailey, also white. You might notice it happens a lot. And um, I will just not say the word projection.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, who am I to talk about white guilt? people
1: people should get that idea in mind though and read white fragility because i mean i read that and i was just like whoa what is this woman admitting but this is a thing right because this is another thing that comes up this is worth pointing out um you hear these people confess all the time that they're racist right i saw a thing recently somebody was saying uh, something to do with the Southern Baptist Convention, as a matter of fact, that so-and-so came out and said that he's a racist, and well, we should take him at his word and maybe not empower him rather than putting him in a position of more power, right? But the thing is that you have, if, if, again, it's like common parlance understanding, why in the world are all these people coming out and confessing that they're racists, right? What's well, the same reason that Christians come out and confess that they're sinners? Um it's the same reason
0: and
1: so what they're they they believe that exactly because they believe that everybody especially every white person or lighter skinned not white person or white adjacent person they believe that every white person, white white
0: adjacent person i'm sorry kind of caught me off there didn't mean to interrupt you that's
1: a thing um so uh (laughs) yeah white adjacency is a thing and so Every white person, at least though, is complicit in the system of racism. They benefit from it. They ignore it, blah, 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 whatever it is. They are therefore morally responsible for it. That's the title of Applebaum's book. And so it's a state of fact about all white people. So the only people who could possibly be good are the people who are willing to recognize that truth about themselves and reckon and wrestle with it. Exactly like the claim that we are all sinners we are all fallen by the sin of Adam. We are all fallen, or sin of Eve, if you depending on how you want to put it. We're all fallen and the only the the beginning of salvation, the beginning of salvation in, in Jesus Christ is confessing your fallen nature, confessing your sin, and then accepting his atonement for whatever theory of atonement is, is presented, whether that's ransom or whether that's grace whether that's works whatever the theory of atonement it is when i say that this is an augustinian construct i'm like ah, this is go read augustine <laughs> take out the word you know sinner, and put in racist and you pretty much have robin d'angelo
0: and maybe maybe that's how robin d'angelo went about writing her paper <laughs> it's just well, like there's... you guys took mein kampf <laughs> and took out jew and put in white person you know i mean it's, is it so uh, ridiculous of a proposition?
1: It, I mean, I, th- I, I don't think that that's what happened, actually. No, I've, um, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> I think that they have the same mental uh, situation going on or emotional yeah. situation going on. Yeah. And exactly. there's, a, there's an issue that's been described as a form of OCD called scrupulosity that a lot of people don't know about. And scrupulosity is very common in certain calvinist groups but more in catholics and mormons than anybody else and scrupulosity arises as a form of ocd where you believe that you haven't properly saved yourself and so you become very scrupulous trying to be very 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 pious and you have this kind of you know church marm very pious like you know if you've seen fantastic beasts the the harry potter movie the first of the fantastic beast series the the woman who's who's Credence's adopted mother or whatever that this the angry anti-witch marm scrupulosity and like go watch that film just watch some of her and then turn around and watch Robin D'Angelo or Alison Bailey speak interesting I think that's what's going on here is that there are people who are consumed with their the own beliefs of their own sin and are are doing something with it
0: uh, well, the, this is, the parallels are, yeah.
1: are incredible.
0: Well, it's not, and it's not hard to guess. I mean, people are only motivated by so many things. And, um, and it's really not hard to figure people out. I mean, because of the fact that we are actually pretty simple creatures in, in, our, in our base impulses. And, and when we have sinned, when we have gone to an extreme end on one end of a spectrum, and we reform, we realize the error of our ways, often, uh, you know, 99% of the time, right? Right over to the other end all of the spectrum. All the way. Yep. Right? All the way. Pendulum
1: Clangs against the other side.
0: Exactly. Yep. We all do it, guys. It's not, this isn't like some, I'm going to poke my fickle finger of accusation at at, at, at people for being human. Right. We all do this, right? I did this. We all do this. You come out of a group and bang, everything about that group is bad, evil, awful, nefarious, horrible. They, they meant to destroy the world from the very beginning. There was nothing good in it ever of any kind. I mean, you run into this in Scientology all the time. I mean, come mm-hmm. on. you know We all know this. So some people, though, here's the thing. Some people stay there. They don't swing back to the middle and the whole point of if I was going to, you know, bring a reductionist definition down of what is recovery, it's coming back to the middle. It's coming back to a place where you can kind of see the good and bad on both ends of this thing, yep. you know, and that's where some people never get to. They, they come out and they stay militant, anti, bad, horrible, everything about it's bad. It's, you know, where, where you're engaged in black and white thinking, you go from white to black, right? Or yep, exactly black to white. And that's some people just stick there. And I, I you know, and I have always recommend, you know, get some therapy. <laughs> you know? I mean,
1: it, it it really, it really kind of sticks out. Um, I was reading Robin D'Angelo's book and I had been saying for a couple of years that I had, I mean, going back to the Atheism Plus thing, so several years, I'd been saying, you know, my gut reaction with these people when I'm trying to guess what's going on some of these blogs they're writing or the videos they're making or the railing that they're doing about this stuff is it's like they went out to like the grocery store or something and they saw a black person and they were like black person. And then that's it. Right. For two seconds. Then they're like, I noticed, I noticed, I noticed a black person. I noticed they're black. Am I a racist? And then the whole drive home, they're like, I can't believe I, am I, I can't believe I noticed, I shouldn't have noticed. God. And then next thing you know, they get in their house, they throw their groceries on the floor and they're typing an angry blog or they're flipping on their camera, doing an angry podcast. And it's, you know, it's like, I get it. I get the impulse, but you know, we don't have to live in like the, there's a lot of theory that gets created that way. And we, we are not all obligated to live in, in other people's um I don't know I wanted to just just say pathologies and move on with it
0: but um I mean it's a point it's a point you know and it and it rubs and it's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way because of course we're talking about human rights equal rights civil rights we're talking uh, about equality I we're mean, talking why about do you a level playing this? field and here we are being all critical of the people who are who are claiming to be the mainline proponents of that. And that's what we're and that's why we have to be so damn clear about this and even it's multiple so, times, frustrating. you know, it's, it's so like frustrating. look. have we said anything during this entire podcast about how minorities should be abused and how we agree with that, how we think it's wonderful? That there be an, that there be an unequal playing field. That that it's good that there should be wide gender pay gaps. That it's good that women should be in the kitchen. We're not pushing any of that. That's not no. what this is about.
1: Not even know? close. Right. It's it's like the entire reason that I kind of got into this in the first place. I remember having lengthy conversations with Helen about it. It was how frustrated we were. And I mean, I wrote an essay on at around the same time, before we even started writing these papers, why I am a liberal who fights the left. And one of the main motivations I had is that I'm sick of the left being unelectable. I don't think that the left should win every election necessarily. I don't think the right should win every election. I have a very you know complicated view about politics. I find myself on the left um, but I think that the interplay between disagreeing factions is really important. And when you have a situation where, I mean, I think that, that, you know, of course, Obama was president twice in a row. So the left was electable to some degree there. Of course, now they're saying Obama's a conservative. So what are you going to do? So then the thing though, is Trump's election was an anomaly. It wasn't normal. Everybody saw from the, get-go that there was no reason dude should have won. And everybody knows it, but somehow he did. And then we see similar, as they call them, right-wing populist victories in other countries around the world. And people can say, oh, well, you have these evil characters like Steve Bannon and whatever that are manipulating for it. Ah, Nigel Farage. Ah, they're doing all these things. You know, they're pulling the strings. But the thing is, is that they're winning by really narrow margins, which means you don't have to have much better of a candidate to go against them to not have them win. You really didn't even have to improve that much. Now we could talk for hours, I'm sure, about the various virtues and flaws of Hillary Clinton that's beside the point um, that did play a role. Her. I could talk about the politics of neoconservative political regime and how she's the, the avatar of that in some sense. And so it's a dying political regime. And it's very hard to motivate people to vote for something that's on its way out that most people on both sides of the political spectrum are sick of, yada, 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 whatever. But the the problem is that the, the s- political correctness was already an issue in that debate. I remember... Trump even make, I wrote a thing before he was elected in 2016, in April, it got published. We wrote it in like February or something. I don't know. Maybe you got June and April. I got the dates wrong. But that year, early in the year, we wrote it, Peter and I wrote an essay together talking about how political correctness could be basically like the thing that, that Donald Trump is like, well, I'm not for that. And in fact, he and Ted Cruz had like, I'm less politically correct. Like, battle during the republican primaries in 2016. so um, it's like i'm not making that up it was relevant but then it's become so much more relevant now and you see like what just happened in the uk you see just you know there was no reason that that the left should have lost as badly as they did and in traditional left strongholds except that the left has abandoned its traditional charges and has taken up this stuff that most people when they start to hear about it, they kind of think, yeah, okay. And then but then they're like, wait, what? That's crazy. You know? And so, and then importantly, the people in the swinging middle who decide elections are just like, uh, no, you know, I'm not going with that. So Donald Trump looked like a better option than, you know, the trans bathroom issue was a big one right before the election. There were a lot of these kind of like Black Lives Matter was blocking highways to airports and things like that. And like storming on stage and like knocking Bernie Sanders over to, to oh, run that's around. That's
0: right. I remember that. That's right.
1: These things were visible. These yeah. things
0: were happening. People were. So when you're
1: talking about a margin of victory, that was literally like, a, what, a hundred and something thousand, votes, like really a small margin of victory in three states that are traditionally swing voter states you know this isn't all oh, the right wing's pulling all they're they are they're doing awful crap and it but you're not going to be able to stop that first of all on the left and second of all, all you can beat it cuz they're barely winning by the simple act of not being insane you hear it like memes aren't totally true we hear it almost every i see it on twitter like literally every day all the democrats have to do to win this election is not be insane and they can't even do it i hear it from conservatives i hear it from from never trump conservatives i hear it from Uh far right conservatives, I hear it from centrists, I hear it from people that are reasonable in the left. The only people I don't hear it from are the far left who are dictating the conversation about these issues and and forcing Elizabeth Warren to say again, ridiculous things like I'm gonna consult a transgender teenager as part like what are you talking about?
0: Exactly. That was the lamest statement I and I I was actually pretty pro-warren. But Jesus, man, I mean, I had to switch over to Bernie because I was just like, whoa, she's too malleable on this stuff. Bernie's steady Eddie. I mean, at least with Bernie, he's consistent. He's consistent. But but regardless of any of that, I, I think you're absolutely right in talking basically here about the fact that there are unintended consequences to social movements and while you're pushing for equal rights and an equal playing field and, and you know and, and e- equality of opportunity right not opportunity not equality of outcome but equality right. of opportunity, right? I'm all about that. Right? I want that 100%. I think I think most of us on the left do. These are these are hardcore left principles. But what we don't want is extremism, you know. And the extremists, right? You know, where you take you take small issues and you blow them up to make them statistically crazy. Right. Uh, and and you know, look, I, I I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I'm I'm sure that I'm going to do that. But I'm going to say this anyway. Uh, trans bathrooms. Trans bathrooms. Right? Yeah. Let's be let's be critical for a second. Now I got nothing to say about trans bathrooms. I honestly don't care. Give them a bathroom, right? Okay, fine, whatever. Or let them let them go in the opposite bathrooms. I don't care. What I don't care about even more though is taking a problem that applies to this. Tiny little percentage of the American population, and making it out to be the social argument that we all have to have an, a, an opinion on. And if you come down on the wrong side of that opinion, then we're going to cancel you and destroy your career. Like right. what? It, it, huh? How did how did this how did this this basically fringe issue become the national talking point of of how we're going to elect somebody? I mean, I it's not it's not that it's an unimportant issue. Get my wording here it is important for the people it applies to. And I right. want it resolved for the people it applies to. But how is it taking up a disproportionate amount of time when we should be talking about things that have vastly larger consequences and influence? Healthcare,
1: mm-hmm.
0: taxation, small business. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure. There's all kinds of subjects that need a whole lot of attention. And unfortunately our attention span in the news cycle is a zero sum game there's only so much time to talk about these that's things. that's right that's right you know so that's i think right. that's an important point you know let's go ahead and start moving towards the, what i wanted to get to at the end of this thing which is kind of where this is all coming from systemically we can look sure. at the individual people Absolutely, you know, projection, white guilt, whatever. <laughs> Absolutely, it's pretty obvious. But we have some systemic things here. Now, propaganda by redefinition of terms, we covered it, pretty, pretty mm-hmm. detailed, right? It's, it's Orwellian. It, you know, you can take terms like diversity or inclusion or equity. Oh, by the way, do you want to just, let's, let's talk about equity, because I found that so interesting Sure. Uh, as an example of this, right? You have equality, and then you have right. equity. Synonyms. Mm-hmm. And yet, not really. No.
1: No, not
0: how's that? How's
1: that uh, work? So, so the, the the definition of equality is. I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is that equality is what you said—equality of opportunity, where equity means equality of outcome. So that's it's not a, being the simplest thing you can say about it. It's not quite right. Uh, the formal definition of it that I saw in a paper about social equity that was published in the '80s when this whole topic started being talked about, and I don't remember the citation for that, but I can probably pick it up, uh, is that equality means that citizen A and citizen B are equal, and equity means that shares are adjusted so that citizen A is made equal to citizen B. Um, So an equity program that had a lot of visibility, obviously everybody knows, tip of their tongue, is affirmative action. That is an equity program. It's... Uh, whether that creates more equality or not is is a debate. But that was that was a program rooted in equity. Uh, it was also the whole diversity equity thing started up when the Supreme Court said that they couldn't do affirmative action in certain arenas. But if they could frame it in terms of diversity somehow, then they could go ahead. <laughs> hmm. I see. Hmm. So, <laughs> so <laughs>
0: what to do? What to do?
1: Yeah. So um, the idea with equity on the surface is that if there if we lived in a, in a society with absolutely no impediments then there's no reason that race gender sexuality etc would have any outcome in terms of creating differences in, in outcomes so you wouldn't see you know proportionally fewer black people in whatever job or proportionally fewer women in whatever job than whatever their parity status, demographic parity statuses of 13% black people in a community, you would expect 13% of the, or the nearest possible thing uh, to be, you know, in the city council or something like that would be black. And so because there'd be no barriers whatsoever, preventing that from happening. And I mean, you can sit there and say, well, yeah, that's true, but it's also facile because these things correlate with other features, most notably, which they never almost talk about. They do, but they don't, but they do, but they don't, but they don't, but they do, but they do, Vicky Pollard. They, they um, don't really talk about economic class and economic class actually has gigantic impacts with this. You're not allowed to talk about the fact that different groups decide that they wanna have cultural identities and the cultural identities value different things either you're not allowed to talk about that, but that's also likely to be a contributor. You're not allowed to talk about other structural things that have nothing to do with like the structure of language or even the law, like for example, the rates at which you have single parent households, for example. Uh, those th- there are other factors, in other words, that are playing into this, but they say, they see that, that if there are disparate outcomes, then the, the conclusion is that it must be discrimination, prejudice, racism, so on. And so the goal of equity is then to create uh, pathways by which that can be adjusted. So here's an example of male and female equity that's used for academic hiring that I know of. There's a program called Stride out of the University of Michigan, and many, many universities have adopted it. And so one of the guidelines in Stride, as it turns out, and I don't know if this is domain specific, I don't know if it's across the board, I just know that the, the faculty member I was talking to for the department that he works in it's true, uh, is that there is a two to one ratio of male first author papers to female first author papers. This is a metric that they care about when you're trying to get hired as an academic or when you're trying to get um, tenure or promotion or whatever. So there's a two to one ratio. I asked the guy, I said, do you know why that two to one ratio exists? He said, no. I said, does anybody know why? And he said, no. And I said, well, what does stride say to do? He says, well, it's simple. There's a two to one ratio. So when a male applies and he has Y first author papers, you give him a score of Y in that category. And when a female applies and she has X first author papers, you give her a score of two X in that category. And I said, but you just said that you don't know that it's all down to discrimination. And I agree with you. If it was all down to discrimination, there'd be an argument for that approach. If it was all down to discrimination, I, I, I'm not going to I would even probably start to advocate for it. I don't know. That's actually equity. So I'm not totally against this idea of equity. I'm not like ridiculous of just like an ideologue against. It. Oh, it's bad. They say it bad. You know, but there's definitely I don't know if it's right or not. It's, it's a conversation to have for sure. Right?
0: Well, the, the various I, factors you're talking about alone have to felt, have to factor into this. So, if, you, if so you're going to talk the, about causative elements or causative agents, you better be sure.
1: Right. And so then you I know. say to the guy, I was like, "But you just said that nobody knows why um, that two to one ratio exists," and he said, "Correct." And I said, "So how do you know it's all discrimination?" Which is obviously what you're making up for. And he it was like, you know, you, you hear, you read like the Lord of the Rings and it's like the light, the flame got in their eyes, like Gollum turned evil. He's like, what else could it be? And I was like, whoa, uh, let's list some things. And he was like, no, what else could it be? It's discrimination or those things are based on discrimination too. And I was like, okay. He's like, discrimination systemic. You know, I was like, uh, the conversation had just completely devolved at that point. And I, I was like, all right. So that's, You know it's like i i think there are conversations to be had about various equity programs and i have an example of an equity project that everybody agrees with everybody supports it uh that i know of i mean maybe a few assholes don't but and there's always gonna be a few assholes that's another thing they do is they're like oh one asshole said it therefore the society is poisoned with this whole idea no the guy's an asshole it's okay um but you know if there's gonna be equity, it's, people are very, very sensitive to unfairness. And so if you cook up a system that's not justifiable in terms of genuine fairness, people are gonna lose their minds. If your system also takes in sins of the ancestors, sins of the fathers, and you say, well, black people haven't been in this job as much in the past, so we need more. You heard that with women, with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying he couldn't say there was equality on the court till there were nine Supreme Court justices who are women. Why nine? because we have to make up for the 200 and whatever before you supposes. won supposedly. So I don't think she said that, but you know, she's kind of joking or whatever. So if people don't get into that historical make up for it thing for the most part, and so you're going to lose people. So you've got to have a system that people are going to see as fair. You also can't put it to the point where it's so extreme. Your equity ambition is so extreme that you start compromising other relevant variables. Like, I don't think there should be equity for people who can't do math to become bridge engineers. I just don't. The outcome matters. So, and that's well, an extreme Yeah, they're straight up example.
0: incompetent. They can't do the job.
1: Right, and, and, you you, know. and these, all of these things have to be so careful because there are massive consequences to where if you do a diversity hire, it is absolutely true that you've now introduced fog into the situation where the, say it's a, a managerial position, the subordinates now don't know if it was just a diversity hire or if it was a competency hire. And that actually breaks down team cohesion and yelling at them and giving the diversity training about it doesn't fix it. It just makes them matter. So these things are actually delicate, but there's an argument to be had to that they can be done right under the right circumstances, but they need way more care than this. So here's your example, by the way, just so I don't drop it. Of what equity that everybody agrees with is handicapped parking spaces. And oh, I say sure. that they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're, their equity based not just like oh no no that's equality of opportunity right because you got to give them opportunity to get out of their larger vehicle with the equipment and their wheelchairs and everything no 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 no, no. they're not just parking they're the best parking spaces they're always the best parking spaces and you get a massive ticket if you park in one without the tag so this is equity we all agree with let's give all the handicapped people the best parking spaces not I mean, not just so they can have access to the store, but so that they can actually have preferential access in terms of their parking arrangement. They don't have to wheel themselves as far as somebody else would have to walk. This is, nobody disagrees with this. This is totally, totally reasonable. Any society that can afford to mandate uh, handicapped parking spaces is going to now. And this is genuine progress. And this is, this is under a heading of equity. So I'm not like blanket against equity but we do, you do need to know what it is. So when you start looking at it in terms of it just being affirmative action, there are, there are consequences to that. And you've got to be right about it. When you apply it, you can't apply it sloppily. You have to know what portion of, is... If, let's say that you did a really, really careful study and you figured out that there is a gender pay gap that's unattributable to any other factor, unknown factors, and it's like six cents on the dollar or whatever. I think there's an argument to be made that, okay, well, let's, let's bump some pay. But you can't take the whole 70, you know, whatever, 29 cent difference because it doesn't work that way. Not all of that applies. And then the third thing is, is if you start doing it historically, you're not asking for affirmative action at this point. You're now asking for reparations and people exactly. don't handle that. So equity has all that baked into it. And then, I mean, I just tweeted a thing. I don't know the... the. The validity of it, I didn't go dig into it, but somebody tweeted, I retweeted a thing where they put an equity program into schools, the academic achievement in the schools dropped, and why? Well, why you keep, why do you keep pushing it if it doesn't work? Is a, is a question. Why is it dropping? These are important questions to ask not just, you know, pounding your fist and saying more equity, more equity, more equity. If we had more equity, this problem would reverse or even more what I know what will happen in that case is when that data is seen, they'll say that the test that determined that that competence went down was itself racist. So we need to get rid of the test in the name of equity so that equity can't be wrong. Well, when that's the program, you've now made something unfalsifiable or indefeasible, depending on whether it's science or not. And you can't trust whether or not it's it's got validity. It's it's a catastrophe for solving the problems that you and I agree need to be looked at carefully and solved. So that, and there's more than you probably wanted between equity and equality, but that's ultimately what's going on with those ideas. They're very different
0: concepts. Big time. And I'm, I'm glad you took the time to clarify the difference there, and I hope people get that. Um, so, okay. And and the circular logic of it too, of course. Well, you know, because, because it becomes a closed system. And when and it becomes a closed me, system... So, oh, go ahead.
1: This kills me, right? Because these people, the people that are saying this now about equity are the same people who made fun of the Republican Party when the whole excuse, like 10 years ago, I was there. And it's the same, it's literally not like the same kind of people. It's literally the same individuals, who are making the argument when they when the conservatives tried to put whatever conservative thing into play and it didn't work, and they said the problem was nobody was conservative enough. It wasn't real conservatism. This was a huge thing in like 2010. Like not not real conservatism. We weren't conservative enough. If the people the people who tried to implement it had progressive bias, they weren't conservative enough, real conservatism would work. And these these progressives I'm talking about made fun of that rightly so because it means that the conservatism capital c conservative movement was rendering itself unfalsifiable and now they're making the same freaking argument for equity or whatever And it's like guys guys what's happening
0: yeah a little silly a little silly a lot of logical fallacies thrown in the mix there a little little no true scotsman and and some other nonsense um also of course at the bottom of all this confirmation bias um now there's a real basic problem, and I, I thought, as a as a uh, as a doctor, as, a, as an academic, and or, or somebody at least is is as familiar with this field. I mean, you've basically been researching what academia has been doing for the last you know ten years. One of the, in addition to the propaganda by redefinition of terms, the other thing that I see going on here at a base level is that the trappings of science are being used to rationalize pseudoscience. Oh yeah. And this is basically being accepted by a whole section of academia. So my question now is, it's not like, you know, we're going to find if we go into the history of science that this is the first time some kooky, fat idea has taken hold in academic circles and run the entire field over a cliff for a while and then people had to kind of yank right, it back, right? right? I mean, we're, I'm sure we're going to find, if I look back in time, you know, instances where human beings acted like human beings in the, in in the world of academia and science. Yeah, I can give examples right off the top of my head. So, yeah, but I wanted to throw it out there because I because this is the maybe most most recent and perhaps most dangerous iteration of this that we're looking at right now, and mm-hmm. our place in history is to push back against it. So is this whole situation an outlier, or is it just an example of how fads and people can derail science and not necessarily a statement on science itself if you get my if you get my point Right there. this is not a statement on science itself
1: um, so that's a hard question um, and it's an interesting question. Hmm. on the one hand, it has features that are unique because of its um, critical nature and I mean critical in the sense of critical theory, which, is a very unique and apparently seductive thing to take up and to get into. And that that is different than other academic fads that have come up because critical theories are inherently invested in activism. They inherently, and this is by definition, take on a vision of how they think the world should be and try to make sure everything comes out that way. And they um, distinguish themselves from traditional theories intentionally, as, as traditional theories are things that try to understand how a situation actually works. Maybe it's trade-offs, maybe it's the complexities, maybe it's the constraints of the system and uh, critical theory is not interested in those. It's only interested in describing the problematics that arise from implementing the system. So it doesn't necessarily, so pro- you know, you put a system into play, it's not perfect. Critical theory has very little interest in trying to understand why the system is the way that it is. And it is entirely invested in describing why the, why and how the system failed, but particularly in terms of the unfair power dynamics that it produces, that moral vision that it has, the set of oughts about the world. So it's very distinct from science, but it's also a strong way to empower people who don't know science, don't have any scientific training to be able to take an ax to science and do a lot of damage to it because they can say, oh, well, your science contains these problematics. It could be used for these inappropriate purposes. It could." It, it implies this about people that we don't want to think about, you know, how these methods are disparately used, more white people use them than whatever. And then they actually do these, are, I'm not making these up as like examples from top of my head. These are things that actually people say and that, 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 happen. They go to, they go to Africa, for example, and they tell people under a rubric of post-colonial theory that science is a product of the, of, of the white West and it's not for you how what yeah you have other knowledge you don't (laughs) need to be colonized by white western knowledge and that when we come back and say but science works they say that's just white western uh, colonialism not willing to look at your own biases but science built a nuclear bomb look at the bad things that can happen i mean they really put this into application in consequential ways so um i'm not just being flippant you know kind of giving those kinds of examples uh, it, it's really sort of a thing. So there is a unique threat posed by this because of the critical methods in, in it and because of the kind of almost, I mean, they were not as cynical and nihilistic as the old school postmodernists, but the whole, that whole vibe doesn't breed anything good. Um, it, it isn't constructive. It is, in fact, destructive or deconstructive, is, is the phrase deconstruction. Uh, again, Jacques Derrida. It, it, it doesn't build things, it takes things apart. And so that's also why it largely burned out in the, in the 90s and had to mutate as Helen and I describe in our book. So anyway, in that sense, it's uh, unique, but it's also definitely an academic fad. It's also one that's pushed by a moral panic, that moral panic was exacerbated tremendously by the anomalous election of Donald Trump to the presidency. I think that's part of why it's so loud and so ascendant all of a sudden course it its ascendance preceded him somewhat too there are probably other reasons for that but certainly it got put on steroids under those conditions um for a variety of reasons and so you know there is that faddish element and then there's one other thing i'd like to actually say here that i wonder about the history for example of um geology i don't know if you know where the science of geology came from but it, it, was, it was pretty pretty crappy in the early 19th century it's fun to go read this story actually and i'm going to get it a little bit wrong so people can pick me or whatever because you know this isn't what i do but from what i understand there were two the, the, the big one of the biggest questions in the budding field of geology was where does the where does basalt come from the where, does, where
0: does bath salt come from no no
1: no basalt b-a-s-a-l-t yeah, yeah. A volcanic rock that was what they didn't know, though, and there were two camps that were at war with each other, the, volcan- the volcanists, who believed they were volcanic rocks, and the Neptunians, who believed that the seafloor somehow, like, stuff fell from the sea and collected and the pressure made it into, into uh, that rock. And nobody knew the answer to this. And these people were canceling each other. They were like, you know, some of them would have like a spouse that was a playwright and they wrote a play. And then the people from the other camp would go and like boo the play all the way. I mean, like stupid stuff. Until finally they decided, like, let's just go gather rock. They had this huge convention at some point in the early 1800s, I think, early 1800s. I might be wrong on that. And they said, why don't we just go get rocks and look at them? until we, you know, study them until we figure it out. And it took them like 10 years. And they finally concluded, oh, it was it's volcanology is what's going on here. The seafloor is created by volcanology, which of course creates the mechanism to explain tectonic drift and uh, everything all of a sudden is like, you know, it, it's world-changing ideas. But for a while, they just fought. So I don't know. And you can kind of find stories like this. Another one is in glaciology. Glaciology uh, was originally done and the fam- famous feminist glaciology paper that got us into this whole fake paper business in the first place talks about this accurately. It tells the truth is that in the early days of glaciology, the only people who could go to glaciers like tall mountains or you know, in the Arctic and come back alive were like burly manly men. And so there got to be this culture in glaciology at the beginning that was like, well, you know, so-and-so is a tougher guy and he killed more polar bears or whatever, therefore his knowledge of glaciers is better and that did define because of glaciology it did. <laughs> because of course it did he was better at getting the information because he could kill more seals or whatever right, the thing so he was more manly and hardy so so this was a thing at the beginning so my point is and we laugh about it now and my point is that nascent sciences tend to be plagued by really not knowing what the hell's going on they're still I, you, you know historically we talk about the, the what do you call it um uh, natural philosophy, right? And then natural philosophy, we kind of have this enlightenment myth or story or whatever, maybe I don't know how it works, that we tell it natural philosophy guys better and better and became science. And then natural philosophy kind of, well, the thing is, as the science is born, it becomes less and less armchair philosophy and more and more rigorous empiricism and careful theory building and things like that. And in sociology, anthropology, and to a degree psychology, these social sciences, things are still pretty fuzzy. We're really not that far off from Freud, who is you know, basically everybody wants to have sex with their mother. Do they, Sigmund? Exactly. What's the idea? Projection? Really? <laughs>
0: exactly. Tell, um, me <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more.
1: So we're, we're really not that far off. And this is actually right. a very complicated object that requires neuroscience to under... Psychology requires neuroscience to have deep understanding of it, which is new. We're barely getting the tools to do it. So we should expect these... So I don't know if these humanities fields which are like bastard sociology is really what they are. They're, they're pretending to be sociology, but they still have traction because sociological methods are too new and unrefined to be able to shut them out. Plus the people who tend to be drawn towards sociology because sociology was kind of, I mean, Durkheim wasn't, but sociology was kind of founded around the idea that society needs to be changed. Um, There was, there was the element from very early on that that was the point of sociology and that's the critical theory people. Um, that really built it's kind of
0: activism up. science
1: and even psychology right i don't want to impugn psychology but it is it's activism science and yeah. uh therefore pseudoscience that's right and so so the point of if you were to either various like zoom out a hundred thousand feet and take a big picture shot of of the frankfurt school or frankfurt school i'm trying to train myself to say it correctly it's not going well <laughs> um one of the main points of that entity of course somebody's going to say no it was to ask why fascism was working yes of course that was the thing but that's not my point was to take to understand that particular question by combining marxist theory and freudian theory it was to combine psychoanalysis and marxian theory in order and that's what's called neo-marxism that's what the point of it was was to to marry marx and freud and so the science of psychology. This this thing was a think tank. The science of psychology, a lot of it in a lot of your early big psychological names when you take your survey of psychology course early on, Adler and so on, uh, Eric Fromm, were in that, they were in the the ISR. And so the Frankfurt School. So a lot of stuff that was very early on in psychology has deep roots in the critical approach, which is to change society through Mary, Marx, and Freud. So I don't know, also, so we have the, it is unique in one sense, and then it is um, a fad in another sense, where, you know, madness is taking over. But there's this other part to it, I seriously believe, that that we're also at a cusp just before psychology, and then by extension sociology and so on, anthropology can start to become truly rigorous sciences. We're just early on that, so the philosophy crap, in particular this bad philosophy, this critical philosophy, Has a lot more sway over those things than it should. So that's why you see people say, oh, race sociologists. And they mean somebody like Barbara Applebaum, who's a philosopher.
0: She's not a race sociologist. Right. She's not actually practicing sociology.
1: That's why you see what we call gender studies here in America, which is a discipline within what's called the theoretical humanities. It is not a social science. Gender studies is not a social science. But in other countries, and some other cultures, it is called gender sociology. It is not called gender studies. And so there's this blurring between like the theoretical humanities that that, that talk about social stuff. There's a blurring between the philosophical and the social science that is not yet clearly defined. So if, if you wanted to say like, why did you write these papers? And I wanted to distill it in the concept, context of this conversation we're having. One of the reasons is that we really do hope that the social sciences will start to clearly distance themselves from this theoretical humanities nonsense. Theoretical social sciences can, can exist and they can be susceptible to this and they can have the same problems as all theoretical approaches, string theory and physics even. So um, fine, but you really do have to start, you know, the empirical side, if you want it to work out, the empirical side has to win. And exactly. so that had the, Theoretical social sciences, I don't really, I have some issues with the fact that they have been taken in by a lot of this stuff and that they're not distancing themselves successfully from it. But really that's what we need to see is we need to see the social sciences moving further and further away from this sophistry, this armchair philosophy that's pretending to do its job. And because it's very activist and very loud and very vigorous and has nuclear weapons in the
0: social sense
1: uh, is, is, um, stealing the thunder of legitimate social science
0: well yeah and the and the social activism really scares school administrators and executives and people they just like don't that want they trouble. Just, yeah they just don't want it i mean who wants to go to work and be faced by a mob of angry students who are demanding or a media you know, campaign
1: that starts yeah. targeting your alumni or whatever whether it's money involved or not just a you know, whatever universities in the news again for being, you know, racist, blah, blah, blah happened at the University of Montana. Nobody wants that happening around their, their organization, the PR nightmares. And these social activists are actually extraordinary. Imagine the people who've spent the last 50 or 60, maybe even 80 or 90, depending on how you count it, years studying the impacts of language on society are going to have the ability to use language as a weapon. Imagine that.
0: Exactly. Exactly, but you got to look past that to the concepts and to the ideas that are being forwarded, and that's really where that's the that's kind of, in a way, the ultimate in critical thinking. You know, mm-hmm. to be able to move past the words and get into where where is this? Wh- what are we really talking about here? And, and looking at it from the different perspectives, because the thousand foot look is very important to to, to right. maintain some time, but very difficult for you know for people who are not specialists in fields to to get totally. so. So it becomes this big problem, you know all right, so um so good because I don't I uh, you know I, I I want oh let me ask you this very quickly sure. um, how big of a problem is this across academia because I hear oh my God, this is a big problem and then I hear nah no, no, it's only on the coasts it's only in a couple schools that people are this crazy you know so i'm I'm a little not sure how big of a scope of a problem is this how much should we be concerned about this uh, well you know um
1: hard question (laughs) it is a very hard question sorry you said quickly (laughs) Uh, various (laughs)
0: levels it doesn't have it's relevant on various levels (laughs) it is
1: though it's very it's relevant on various levels institutionally speaking in terms of what's happening in the administrative arms of these things uh it is an, an enormous problem these institutions, along with other institutions, because as you pointed out, and I won't do my whole uh, university as Narnia rant for you, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you, you did point out that most people don't pay attention to it. Um, the, uh, the, the institutional level is pretty deeply cooked. Uh, okay. The diversity boards and so on, there's not a lot of pushing back on this diversity and inclusion statements for, for hiring Berkeley just got burned for that. That is on the coast, but nevertheless um you, you also have like i mentioned the university of montana that was not offhand they had just this huge thing about martin luther king day turns out they had an essay contest for martin luther king day and six people entered the essay contest they all happened to be white so the winners were white and it's racist that white people were allowed to win even though the point of the entire essay contest was that the the um activists on campus said that it wasn't fair that, that people of color were having to do all the heavy lifting. So they wanted more white people involved. So they came up with an essay contest and like, never mind, but so the university is racist. So I mean, the thing is happening kind of in a lot of places. I don't know. It's not happening deeply in most math departments, except maybe with hiring stuff. So the guy I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about Stride, and I said, I didn't know if it was domain specific. It's a physics department. So. It is happening with regard to, you know, hiring and department politics and all of this. So again, at the institutional level, do I think that the universities are successfully being indoctrination mills? No, not so much. Um, They certainly are, however, working this curriculum in more and more widely and more and more um, at at a mandated level, right? So the curriculum is now including more and more, I think California has a bill put up right now to mandate uh, ethnic studies in all of the uh, University of California system everybody who graduates has to take ethnic studies and there are diversity course requirements at nearly every university so it's a pretty broad problem but your average academic day-to-day isn't probably gonna run into a lot of it campus culture it's gonna be a mixed bag you're gonna have you know the same usual thing but uh, most students you know just doing their student thing a lot of them don't care about it some of them do but there were flyers up all over the place for diversity of this, diversity that, white people not allowed. We just saw the thing at the University of Virginia, I think, where they had a multicultural center and a black student stood up and somebody thought it was a good idea to film this. And, uh, you know, like one of her friends thought it was a good idea. Like, this was the good thing to put up on the Internet and, you know, put up, a, you know, we have too many white people in here. Y'all white people need to think about where you're spending. Uh, Spending your time and taking up space—taking up space was the phrase. You have the whole university; everybody does, actually, uh, but not if you want an all-colored room, which those used to be frowned upon. Uh, duh.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's a bit ironic that they would that that you would get to the place now where we go from civil rights and destroy segregation. Talk about pendulum swinging all the way. Oh, they get everything to, backwards. Segregated spaces are the only spaces that are okay.
1: For the opposite mentality. Yeah, they get everything backwards. Um,
0: You just have to look at this on a bigger picture and just go, what are you guys doing?
1: They get everything backwards. And they think that they can reverse the mentality and it'll fix all the problems. Go back to the old way of thinking, reverse mentality and it'll undo it all. Um, But the bigger problem for academia is that the meme of academia is this. And they can't make that not happen. You can say it's a right wing hit job that they're, you know, nut picking or whatever, but uh, you can blame people like Peter, Helen and I for shining a light on it and talking about it. I actually am not all that interested in academia anymore, personally. They are what they are. Um, This is in corporate offices, this is in law, this is in medicine, it's getting in a lot of things now um, that I'm much more concerned about. It's in faith, as I was just mentioning. Uh, I'm very concerned about these things. But um, the meme of the university right now is social justice and that's not good that is a bad bad brand to have hitched to outside of your kind of like liberal elite bubble where you think it's good and great because a lot of people keep trying to tell you that they don't like it and so you can say oh well academia is just going to do what it's going to do but somebody's got to pay for that whether that's by sending their kids there instead of to some other institute to get a trade or to just bypass college and some it's like you just it's the money doesn't come from nowhere your alumni still have to donate money state governments still have to approve of it there was a thing at the university of tennessee i think a few years after i left where they used to they I think they still do have this thing there called sex week and it's all sex ed and all this stuff and it got more and more woke and it's all like you know there's like some gay parade or some i don't know something like that one year at sex week or something along these lines and the conservative state legislature lost its mind and cut pretty much all of the funding to the like diversity affairs office or whatever millions of dollars of student scholarships that would go to black students or whatever gone because they don't want sex week happening so eventually i'm not saying that that was good i don't approve of that in fact i'm horrified by that the thing is is that if you provoke backlash and it's probably good to see who has most of the levers of power in their hand right now um that backlash can come and it can come hard and it can come quick and the university can be badly, at least financially damaged by it. Its reputation depends as far as what it's supposed to do. It's never, I gotta yell that like I'm stupid or some shit on Twitter, Ugh, I get pissed off these people. I get yelled at like, I don't know this, like the university has never been perfectly apolitical, obviously, but it's, it's power as a knowledge generating and knowledge disseminating entity depends on it being as as un, as nonpartisan as possible in public perception so what differentiates why why do you say ah oh, Harvard University or even University of Pennsylvania or you know whatever is pick any school you want it doesn't matter such and such university um, Narnia University has produced a study showing the <coughs> sugar consumption blah 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 and you're like ah but then when it's like you know um, Kraft Foods has produced a study showing that sugar consumption is you're like, wait a minute. Or you, you see a study that comes out of something like Georgetown or, you know, again, pick your university. I don't care. It can be a small college. It doesn't matter. But so and so Narnia University shows that blah, 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 political attitudes, yada, yada, yada. And you're like, oh, hmm. And then you hear AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, in conjunction with the Heritage Foundation, has realized that when people, you're like, eh. so when you look at corporate entities or political think tanks, people immediately recognize the bias. And I think it's called Keith's Law, that the more political a thing, or you know conflict of interest in general, but the more political a thing, the less people trust the thing. So when you are creating and maintaining and not doing everything in your power to clean up the very widespread and not inaccurate perception, that there's a massive left-wing bias on college campuses, university research starts falling prey to Keith's law. And so people take it less seriously. So that means, what does it translate into? People not like calling their politicians and wanting them not to support the university's agenda and research, not funding certain departments or all the departments, cutting funding, not sending their kids there, not getting those tuition dollars and so on and so forth, right? So it's a blatant catastrophe in the making for the university.
0: Actually, thank you very much for that. That was a great answer. And it actually did explain the problem. And and yes, the... the, the Anyway, you'd think for their own survival, university executives would earn their pay now by actually stepping up and going, okay, we got to step back from this and get back onto our, you know, neutral, neutral objective. Right. That, I, I think these are really key terms for... Uh, institutes of learning you know? right
1: so it's like the way i see it is like what victor orban did in hungary shutting down all gender studies departments is a bad thing we don't want the government deciding what kind of instit- what kind of departments can exist and not exist we don't want a ministry of truth and i don't know if the academics in the u.s just think like that couldn't happen here like you couldn't just the state governments can defund th- tangentially to make things like squeezed out But if the university is not going to be willing to clean itself up to police the problem that people are very aware of it's like in our i think it's in our book helen and i wrote maybe it's just helen said it somewhere else but i'm pretty sure it's in our book it's like people are afraid that if we point at these problems that are coming out of the university or on the left that people will notice and is people have noticed they already have noticed And we are literally, I don't mean to, I don't, I hate this crap where we put too much importance in politics and it's like, this is the election of our lifetime. And, but we are literally one goofball election away from a Victor Orban who will shut down departments. And that is a, it is fragile stuff. What we have is fragile stuff. Academic freedom is fragile and hard won. You cannot fuck around with it by constantly like, poking the bear by saying, well, under a rubric of academic freedom, we're going to cook up this stuff that's all bogus. And, oh, who cares if they're just, you know, people in university and they're doing their theory. Well, yeah, if that's where it stayed and stayed in your little gender studies departments and nobody nobody would care, but it's not. You got the 1619 Project in the New York Times. It's blatant critical race theory. Okay, so it's being pushed by the New York Times. Massive amount of money behind it how weird it came with a school curriculum to roll out across the entire United States K through 12 system for history. Huh? You know, this isn't staying put and there is, I don't want to get like, I ain't Alex Jones. I don't need a tinfoil hat, but there is money behind this. There's a lot of money behind this. There are a lot of people putting a lot of money behind this. The 1619 project is proof that stuff doesn't just roll out. Somebody has to pay to make that stuff happen.
0: Well I don't think it's I don't think you need a tinfoil hat to observe the fact that, you know, mass manipulation of minds is a lucrative business. Right. I mean Cambridge Analytica proved that. If you if you need mm-hmm. an example Okay, there's one. Right. Yeah. I mean much less let's talk about uh, you know Madison Avenue, not Wall Street, but the effect Madison Avenue has on the consumer mind of the United States is incalculable in terms of value to people who are interested in controlling things at that meta level. And and there are such people. And so it's 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 hardly a conspiratorial flight of fancy to say that, yeah, there's some people with some money who would like to be able to influence other people's minds. I mean, you know, I saw one this- the other
1: day in Ed Week magazine. Uh, this guy writes this article. It's like, oh, the diversity and inclusion and equity industry is... Eight billion dollar a year in the United States alone, every, you know, something like that, just in schools. By the way, and like it's like literally two paragraphs down. By the way, I have a training. And if you want to buy it, it's it's like,
0: <sighs> yep. It's like it becomes a cottage industry. Then it becomes not a cottage industry. It becomes bigger than that. And and I think all this pushback is an effort to maybe no, let's contain this now before this problem becomes so big and so outrageous that. You know that society starts taking a left turn in a direction we really, really, really don't want it going in because it's just going to set us back in terms of rights, and that's what this is all about in the first place. And that's and right. if your agenda-driven rights program has as part of its key strategy shutting everybody else up who doesn't agree with you, then you're not about rights. That's not. That's just. That's 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 the most basic statement I can make about it. So
1: I mean, they're going to set back real civil rights movements 30 or more years if they keep pushing. It, the backlash is going to come. And people are like, oh, he's just stoking for a back." No, I don't want there to be a backlash. I'm trying to stop the backlash by making reasonable people have voices again and to be able to feel comfortable and confident enough to speak up because I don't want the alt-right being the ones who lead the reforms because that's bad, that's real bad. Exactly. Um, I live in the Southeast, I know I don't want that. I don't, I don't want, I don't want the entire country to become like Tennessee. It, that's not my motivation. I am unfortunately one of those red state liberal people. Um,
0: <laughs> I get it, man. I totally get it. All right. Let me ask you one last question. We'll wrap up here. You, you've been awesome. This has been, I love the show. This has been really great. Um you're on you your research the work you do the books you're writing i mean you're all over this right you're and you and you talk about bleeding edge like being way out on the edge of this thing uh and i'm curious what you see at that edge right now because you know we're talking about stuff that was being written pushed talked about in academia 20 30 years Mm -hmm. ago what's being there what's 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 there now that they want to roll out that we're going to be hearing about in 10 or 20 years so, the theory
1: itself has very, very heavily concentrated into a, a direction that anything that disagrees with it is uh, has bad motivations of one sort or another, either self-interest or um, or false consciousness or a combination of the two. And that has really become heavy duty at the forefront of kind of the more scholarly aspects of their literature. So what you are going to see is them increasingly um, kind of whole diving into this idea that who you are demographically, skin color, et cetera, has massive bearing on what you know and what you can know and your status as a knower. That's, it's a thing. That's been a lot of the research. I'm seeing that theme pop up all over the place. Sometimes it comes up in what's called standpoint epistemology, which says your relationship to social power defines your knowledge. And sometimes it's not. There are other means by which it gets pushed. Perspectivalism and some other ideas. Uh, Basically, identity-based epistemologies, this drive into local narratives that that, uh, Leotard was talking about. I also see a shocking amount of very nasty infighting um, going on, which they then fight with, you know, so you have, for example, people of color versus BIPOC black and indigenous people of color. I don't know if they pronounce it BIPOC. I've only seen it in writing, but I'd say BIPOC. Uh, so like, you know, the black and indigenous people haven't been recognized. They get washed, their extra oppression gets washed out by the term people of color. And then, then you have the black and the indigenous folks arguing with one another uh, fighting with one another about whose plight is worse. So you have terms like settler of color, where you have the indigenous side of the argument saying that the black people who are brought over as slaves have settled on native land anyway. And so they're settlers of color. And there's this whole, like, like their infighting is crazy deep. Um, it's really bad. You're starting to see, you know, a major fracture re- reoccurring in the LGBT uh, arena where basically the queue is fragmenting off and anybody who's LGBT plus Q is going to that, – that's where you're seeing people say stuff like Pete Buttigieg isn't – he has sex with men, but – or a man, he's married, but he's not really gay because he's not a queer actress. That's not new. That was happening in the 90s, but there's a resurgence of that, that fracture point happening. So you're seeing a lot more inner turmoil. Um
0: interesting because that also feeds into something i happen to know about uh in the lgbt world where people have assumed the lgbtq community is this one united community and hey, folks it ain't <laughs> i'm telling you from the inside it's, and i'm not is. i'm not part of that community but my wife is she's bisexual and man th- no that community it is. has never been a cohesive whole
1: no it is a coalition it it yeah, <laughs> it is. it's best. like a, it's a coalition held together by magic, like the way they described yeah. the Weasley's house in, in Harry <laughs> yeah. Potter. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And with the queue is even more complicated because the queue is very politically oriented and very different from the rest. I think that's they need right. to kick the queue out and then they can have a coalition that's going to be a little stronger. But uh, whatever. Um, so the bleeding edge has a lot of infighting, it has a lot of this epistemological stuff going on. Uh, as far as the theory goes, that's really kind of what I'm seeing. But you're also seeing now the drive to institutionalize is really, really um, a big thing. Decolonizing education, remaking education. It's almost like they moved on to the remake the system part. Uh, There's pretty much everything in education now. I know there's a educational theorist, a critical pedagogist named Joe Kinchelow. I think I'm saying his last name correctly. And uh, all this decolonize this, decolonize that, blah, blah, blah. He actually founded an institute at a university in Canada and uh, that is like the Paolo Freire, that's a critical pedagogy guy, uh, institute something, something. And then um, he this decolonize everything thing is actually phase two of a program that they laid out. Unfortunately, I have not found the written down part of that. I just read that it is phase two of his program. I don't know what phase three is, but if anybody goes and finds that, I haven't found it yet. I'm too busy to look for all this crap. Um, If anybody does find out what phase three is, I bet you that's, uh, I bet that's coming down the pike and it's, I probably should go look that up today if I can. Uh, (laughs) I've looked kind of half-assed look a couple of times, but it's just, I'm in the middle of a massive, massive project right now. I've got a book coming out I just, I don't have time to, do, to, to, to dig into stuff like I need to. Every time I start digging into one thing, I run into another thing and I end up going down a rabbit hole and I don't get to the thing I was looking for in the first
0: place, it happens so often. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. That, that experience is never something I, I have.
1: One uh, thing I will tell you though with mind. all this, this infighting is that they blame it all on white people. So that's still consistent. So the okay. black black and indigenous people of color split from regular people of color. And now the new thing that I recently saw is that people of color itself was an that term. That idea was an invention of white people designed so that white people would be able to group all not white people in a single category and ignore the the, the variances and also just ignore all other problems. Oh, those are people of color. And it, so basically to create a non-white monolith to set against whiteness um, for their own benefit so that they could have an excuse to ignore the many ver- racial variation. It, I mean, seriously, this is th- so the, 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 the wheel is still turning. It's like they have their own internal fight and then they figure out a way to blame it on the um, so-called dominant group.
0: Right. The answer always comes up white people.
1: That's why everybody asks all the time, like, well, when they get power, are they going to criticize themselves? Like, oh no, they've done nothing for the last at least 10 and probably 20 years except Make sure that they are always, whether they have to appeal to systems that don't really maybe even exist, knowledge systems, science or whatever being white, or to historical fact, you know, well black people were, were systemically discriminated against and viciously discriminated against for 400 years, so the whole system is permeated with that, you know, whether, so it's historical injustices that haven't been made up for, or that stained the system or, you know, whatever it is that they have, they are cooking the books hard to make it so that, you know, you could think of it like the social pyramid and they're flipping it over and they are cooking the books hard so that that's not going to change. Um, When they get the power, they are going to maintain the power. Um, It's not the ongoing it is ongoing revolution in one sense, but it's not the thing that Foucault warned, like Foucault, they've problematized him because one of the things he said is, uh, oh, you know, power comes and then a new group comes and tears it down and they become powerful. And then they're the problem. And these, they have no, we're not, we're not, that. that's not how this works. They are making it so that they are not the problem, even when they become exactly the problem they just, but they already have. They have they've, cultural. They, they've, they've
0: problematized. I love that word i'm sorry but it's it's become a new verb
1: it is it it, it it totally is so that's that's kind of what i see i haven't actually kept up with i mean most of the bleeding edge you know the papers in the last two years there hasn't been as far as i can tell a big revolutionary concept you know like intersectionality that's come up and i know that we deliberately deliberately tried to think of one. We were, I worked hard when we were writing the fake papers to think of the next intersectionality. And if I could think of the next intersectionality and they all start catching on to it. And then I'm like, it was a hoax. It was fake. You know, it would forever poison that direction of- Unless but, of
0: course uh, they, unless of course they use the broken clock defense. Right. Oh, James just well, I mean, happened well, to stumble on exactly well, they, what the problem they,
1: was. They've said that about a bunch of our stuff. Uh, yeah. so the thing is that um I don't know what that next big revolutionary idea is. Uh, the clock on the wall says that we're probably uh, it, it'll probably be coming within the next decade. The yeah. seeds of it will start appearing probably in the next four or five years. Yeah. Uh, and I say that because this has followed a pretty clear progression and you can't extrapolate too well, but of every twenty years there's been a pretty clear shift in focus um and you know postmodernism really emerged around 1970 and then you had i mean the new left emerged around 1950 the the if we want to go deeper the the frankfurt school critical theory started in like 1930 so you got 1930 1950 1970 and then you had the intersectionality it was 1990 and you had this like concentration of it like social justice around 2010 so 2030 you know, where is it headed? And so uh, I don't know the answer to that yet, but usually what you can, looking backwards, you can find the seeds for the thing about four or five years earlier. You start seeing, for instance, people talking about intersectional ideas in the queer theory literature in the early 1984, 1986, and intersectionality bursts onto the scene 1987,
0: 1989, 1991. Has climate entered into it yet? oh
1: yeah i should have said that climate justice is like probably the main thing we're going to hear about i was just
0: thinking that in terms in of fact i had a going. rant
1: about climate justice to nobody i was literally exercising <laughs> in my living room the other night by by myself home alone and i had a whole rant on climate justice in my head it's like it, the observation of climate justice is that climate change doesn't um affect all groups equally and in fact it affects marginalized groups more than it affects not. Okay. So I was like, Holy shit. That's true. But that's because it's banal. In fact, it's not even banal. It's necessarily true. People with fewer resources are going to have bad things, hurt them more. No kidding. It, could, it means nothing. So what is the whole point? It's, it is an empty observation. It is an absolute, it's not even, it's like it's a thing that couldn't be otherwise. And uh, it's like a necessary truth. People who have fewer resources are going to be impacted by a bad thing more. No kidding. So your only options are to like, oh, well, we have to like distribute the resources so that what, what, what skin color they have and what gender they are is different for the people with fewer resources, which is insane. Or try to blanket it out where nobody has any differences, which is communism, and that's not going to work or what so what's the point of this stupid thing and i was like the whole point of it is to try to motivate left-wing they they see climate change work like you know developing new technology and so on as not happening al gore showed all the graphs or whatever back in the you know an inconvenient truth and nothing happened And so it's like this whole panic like if we attach even more like left-wing bullshit to this it'll create more like this is important to me so it'll be important to everybody and therefore will, de- once we see that climate change is about racism, we'll definitely care even more about it and actually know what it makes it look as stupid and it makes it even harder for people to take the science seriously. It diverts resources away from, do you think solving freaking like climate capture and storage is easy? Nobody knows how to do that. And so it's like, you can't divert resources away from that. And, 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 and I know this is happening because I've had emails literally from including people on in the European Union Parliament like help look at this crazy gender and race crap where instead of climate, real climate stuff we're doing, this is our initiative. And it's just 13 pages of everything, gender and race and nothing to do with, you know, anything reasonable to do with climate change. So it's like hijacking a thing and climate justice is our next decade. That's for sure. What that evolves into transhumanism or whatever, 10 years down the line, probably sure maybe but right now it's going to be climate change transhumanism might actually be the next thing after that like we're going to just human the problem is human being human at all we're going to transcend that and we're going to use like vr or something to do
0: it i don't know something like that exactly and somehow that will be racified as well you know oh so. of course and white people will yeah, build gender is fight and all that
1: that's why one of our papers was is an, emer- an emergency level need that ai needs to be an irrational feminist to prevent it from being made by men
0: right <laughs> um okay good um jim this has been fascinating thank you thank you again thank you yeah man
1: yeah this is really wonderful
0: yeah, it's it's just it's wild. It's crazy stuff. It's it's harebrained. It's goofy. It's it's all those things, but it's also concerning, dangerous, even. And it's important. Definitely, it is. Method
1: method matters, right? These problems are important. Let's do them right. That's that's my whole message. If I had to put it in that, and then, then let's try to be friends with people again who we don't agree with. You can actually do that. It's okay. You don't have to hate somebody because their politics that they put up on Facebook like a fool are different than yours. It's like let it be.
0: Exactly. I've had that. in that lesson. Yeah, I've had to learn that lesson so many times over the last three years. And I still am trying to learn it. It's uh, hard. It's hard because hard. we all yeah. we
1: see inside other people's heads now to a level that we didn't. The norms have changed. So finding new tolerance norms where we can see inside people's heads is is a thing. And it's hard.
0: That's right. Exactly. we got to deal with the fact that we're not all on the same page and we're never going to be. And we're going to have to get along anyway because if we're going to do this species thing and we're going to do this, you know, let's all survive thing, then we're going to have to learn how to get along. I'm with you, man. Yeah, big time. Uh, when should people, again, be looking for that book coming out? Well, it was supposed to be
1: the 5th of May, and I was very confident in that. But it looks like we're going to have it pushed back a little bit. Um, early June, I believe, is the new the new deal. Uh, we, had a, we, we asked... Um, the the rather famous dr alan sokol if he would uh if he would um read over our book and possibly endorse it and he did you can see that on amazon now already uh but he has very kindly made tens of thousands of words of suggestions for its improvement that we mostly took um and uh that has considerably pushed back the ability to do the pre-publication runs so an extra month and if anybody's upset about it alan sokol (laughs) it's all
0: Adam Sokol's fault. (laughs) Okay, good. All right, folks. Oh, he's lovely. I
1: can't, my gratitude's really high. I can't, I can't thank him enough, but of course. All right. So early June. Okay, good. Pre-order now and it'll show up when it gets there.
0: Okay. And um, website, any other way to, for people to reach you or reach out to you?
1: I have one that will be launching soon that has not, I'm starting a kind of company to like a media education company whatever company to try to communicate these ideas and kind of collect things in one place. It's called NewDiscourses.com, and it will be launching. You can go sign up for the newsletter or whatever now, and there's just a placeholder page, but it'll be launching on the 26th of this month.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Okay, good. Well by the time this podcast posts, cause it's probably going to be a week or two before I post this, oh. that'll be live. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah so
1: NewDiscourses.com is my new venture.
0: Excellent. And it will be
1: tons of educational, like all these kinds of explanations of the terms and where they came from and, you know, why they're important and all of that. That's kind of lots of the kind of, you know, videos that we've done talking about these issues with different people. That's going to be the kind of primary content that we're going to put out and, you know, try to help people get to, to know it better.
0: Beautiful beautiful okay good well check the links in the show notes guys it'll be in the description section of this video on youtube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. and um and again thank you very much thank you okay guys if you have any questions comments or feedback on this show and i'd be really surprised if you don't uh leave it in the comments section also on youtube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. and if you find this channel informative entertaining and educational and i hope you do then maybe you can help uh, keep the lights on in the show going by signing up on Patreon and uh, link below. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.